And good afternoon from Scotland! Yay! Where it is currently raining. It is pretty dreek out there. If you want a good Scottish word, the pitter-patter of raindrops can be heard on my window just over there. Hopefully it's not coming through as static on your end. I see that. Okay, okay. Now we're live oh. everywhere. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Sorry. <laughs> YouTube was being delayed, but it's good now. I see that. Okay, okay. Now we're live everywhere. Oh, there was a slight uh, echo there for me. And it's gone. So let's just ignore that. <laughs> okay, are we all good to go then? Um, well, while we're uh, tuning things up, let's just say welcome everybody to yet another fine episode of Lorebeards, where we gather every single Sunday to discuss Wait, hold up. some. Oh, I'm getting, we got uh, I'm getting an are you getting echo from? from somewhere. I have no echo on my end, so Which maybe is it's weird. Where is that coming from? I'm, I'm ah, gonna pull I found back. it. I found it. Okay, it was okay, on my so end. I was like, Jesus, I cannot figure out what's going on. Okay. <laughs> I shall just dive back in where I was, where we yeah, gather sorry. every single week to discuss some interesting minutiae from the Warhammer world. We will spend an hour, perhaps two hours, perhaps three hours, perhaps more. We all know that it lasts for a good few hours at this end. Yeah. To dive into every single last little detail that we possibly can concerning the subject at hand. And today's subject is one that is very big in the sky at certain times of years <laughs> yes so uh we are going to be perfectly fitting in with halloween month we're going to be talking about oh, yeah. really and truly the biggest baddest most sinister force in the warhammer world uh which is of course Morslib, the chaos moon which is known by a lot of other different names but that is of course kind of its most famous big one um, it's also known as like the gravid orb and by a bunch of other different bizarre names, but uh, probably <laughs> yes. And there's also a Andy version that we have on the thumbnail. <laughs> oh, I really regret doing that. That came from um, one of the Lawhammer streams where my camera went down. So I had to use a laptop camera. So I was sitting at a funny, weird angle looking down at the screen like this and I couldn't resist going, Ooh. <laughs> And of course, the community immediately went, well, I'm going to put that on Morsley because it looks ridiculous. And that it worked became great. an emoji. Yeah, that it became an emoji great. for my channel. Yeah, the good old Chaos Moon. Gosh darn it. So yes, Morsley, it's going to be um, a fun one today because this is a subject that's, that is so ingrained into the Warhammer world and such a part of it that it influences every single faction, every single species. Uh, all of them have their own stories about it. All of them have their own versions of what it means, what it represents, what happens when it rises. And it's going to be, I think, quite a fascinating deep dive into everything that is pretty much not just Morsley, but the Warhammer world as a whole, because it is so influential yes but i think before we get there we need to start with uh what where did it come from what is it <laughs> oh, be before things. i do the quick where it came from I, I want to give a quick description of what it looks like because this is something that a lot of people kind of don't really get a grip of because most of them think of morsley at its worst because mm. they're so used to playing the computer games and whenever it pops up in the computer games morsley is always full Leering down, looking awful, terrible times are afoot, and everything has gone wrong. Where in the Warhammer world, Warsleep is a part of their fabric of life, and it's always there, skitting about, doing different things up in the sky. So let's have a quick 
description of what Morsleib is actually like. First things first, like our moon, it is normally only seen at night. Now, our moon can obviously sometimes rise during the day, depending where it is on its orbit around the Earth. In a similar mm. fashion, Morsleib can also sometimes rise during the day, but normally it's seen at night, almost like it's trying to hide away from the light of Sul, the sun that sits up there burning. Now, Morsleib's size varies massively, but <laughs> it varies massively on a curve in that most of the time, it's quite small to the point of almost being tiny sometimes. And very occasionally it gets big. And very occasionally it gets really big. Even when it's at its biggest, it's normally smaller than Mansleep. Mansleep is the other moon, the second moon of the Warhammer world, that looks very much like our own and follows a similar, not identical phase. We won't go into the discussion about that. Just simply say it's a moon. Instead of about 28 days, it's 25 days for its full cycle. And that'll do for the moment. It looks like our moon. Morsleib does not have a fixed cycle, which means it might rise almost anywhere on the... Thank you very much, Cody Saunders! Yeah, you rock. Thank you. Not even a message. You kick ass. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and I'm more than happy to carry on. So, um, unlike um, the real moon, it doesn't have a fixed orbit, which means that it erratically moves across the skies. Now, sometimes that might be moving in a snake-like appearance across the sky other times it might look like it's following a standard orbit and then immediately change direction and go in a different direction entirely now there are possibly reasons for this which we will discuss <laughs> later on in the stream because it might not be quite as erratic as everybody believes as viper pops in and says is it true it causes weirkin to turn also twitch cat <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna put the yeah, the twitch cat but twitch chat i will fuck twitch um, chat. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the answer, we'll get onto this too a little bit more uh, later because the Chaos Moon is responsible for a lot of oddities in the Warhammer world. But just to answer that very briefly, our opening part is, yes, it is one of the things that can cause that sort of thing to occur. We'll also pop up there from Roderick. Hey, Roderick, you rock. So what percentage of Skeeve's relationship with Warpstone is just the Warhammer version of the moon being made of cheese? Oh, 100%, most definitely. <laughs> There's certainly a um, a certain degree of humor um, interlaced with everything that yeah, is yeah. with Warhammer we, World. We will get into a lot. Of, we will get a lot into a lot of the Moon Man crazy crackpot theories uh, involving a lot of the Warhammer races in the Moon here in a bit. We certainly will. And hey, Hammond, uh, I, I almost I don't, almost don't want to read it because if it's coming from Hammond, who knows what I'm going to get? <laughs> Who's older, the Sun or the Moon? The Moon because it can stay out at night. Who? <laughs> Boom! <laughs> oh, or boom, boom, to go all British with my basil brushing. So it can change direction. Now, what does it look like? Most of the time, it looks like a small green moon that follows phases, but irregular phases, just like a normal moon. So some days it may be a half moon. Some days it may be a, a crescent moon. It may be almost entirely vanished um, if it's uh, right down to a, the smallest of slivers. And often it can be as small as nothing more than a wan green star, almost like it's a satellite that you can spot, like the International Space Station just arcing its way across the heavens. If you don't know it's there or you don't aren't looking for it, you might miss Morsleib on many nights, if it's a clear sky, of course, because it can sometimes be absolutely tiny and it will just be arcing its way, moving around. But for those of uh, who are staring at the stars, it's very clear where it is because it's the one that's got an odd orbit. Oh, my goodness, turn it, bandit. Hey, Jesus. Zotek. 
Christ. Oh, wow. That's car problems. I hope everything's all right on your end. Your videos been a lot to me. That's a very sweet message. I really appreciate it. I am uh, uh, just a very, very brief aside. Uh, I was I'll in a car accident uh, two days ago. Um, I am fine. The dog is fine. We're okay. Luckily, it was not nearly as bad as it could have been. Uh, one of my doors is now, uh, shall we say, more inward facing instead of outward facing. But other than that, we're okay. The car still works. Um, obviously, it's gonna that. Thank you very much. That 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 will help significantly. That is super fucking generous. Um, <clears throat> you are. Oh, little healing. But yeah, I'm I'm head. I'm okay. I'm good. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> I'm uh, I am I am good. Um, so to continue this little diatribe, um, our moon uh, can arc around in different directions, can often be small, can often grow, but sometimes it swells very large. Sometimes it swells large enough that it can almost look larger than man's leave itself. And that's when things tend to turn a little bit sour. And the reason for that is because whenever Mars leave gets bigger, presumably it's closer to the Warhammer world, and that in turn brings a rising of the winds of magic. And if you want to know more about what they are, go check our video on the winds of magic. We go into this into quite some depth. Now, the winds of magic rise, and that causes all manner of other awfulness potentially to occur across the Warhammer world. So the Chaos Moon, the bad moon as it's rising, is seen as a sign of ill omen because of this, if nothing else. And there's a lot of other things too. Beyond that, there's a few other points worth mentioning. Um, it has, obviously, as we discussed, an erratic orbit that can't be predicted, that could be any one of its phases. It could be going in any direction, but on two days every year, constantly without fail it is always full on the new year's day right at the very beginning hexenstag and a high summer on geheimestag and on the night geheimestnacht and hexensnacht the mm. moon swells full now it won't always be the same size so that's something that's also worth considering it's always going to be full it's always going to be pregnant in the sky, causing all manner of oddities to occur down on the Warhammer world. But sometimes it will be really big. And occasionally it can rise so large that it dominates the sky. And during events of awfulness, Morsley will always be full and will always be high, particularly if we're looking at, say, one of the great incursions of chaos. During those times of high magic, Morsley is full pretty much all the time and we'll discuss a little bit later as to why that might be the case so loosely speaking we have a erratic bad moon that wanders around the sky mostly at night that causes all manner of awfulness down in the warhammer world when it rises full and when it rises full because it causes awfulness it tends to be when bad guys try to do their bad guy thing because there's more magic around for them to do it Beyond that as well, because it causes a massive rise in the magic and a swelling where it should be too high, people often act differently. And in the Warhammer world, this is where the concept of lunacy comes from. Luna being one of the moons, lunacy going mad, similar to how lunacy in the real world was associated with full moons. Over here, it's associated with Mors Leap. <laughs> oh, oh no. What pickup line did Shin Yang say to Kuei Yin? I think you are simply tremundous. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think she would have... I think she would have left him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, 
So with that all said, you've got at least an idea of what we're about to be talking about. Let's move over towards, as I pass over to good old Sotek, where did this moon come from in the first place? Because unlike the real moon, this moon is not actually native, original to the Warhammer world. Yes, and the bad moon. Why? Yes. Yes, that. I hope I didn't ruin all the. Uh, no, no, you're cat- good. You're, oh man. Okay, I just have to bring this up because it was so funny. Did you did you hear about what happened in the last Lawhammer stream when you did? I, the I heard about it afterwards. Yeah, when I did the <laughs> did the horror. It got so much reverb. It was crazy <laughs> how much reverb the mic was like. Oh, he's singing. Clearly, <laughs> I need to add something here. I'm quite looking forward to listening back to that because I haven't reached that point. <laughs> I'm currently doing the uh, post editing bits to that video. I haven't reached there yet. Yeah, for like a good ten seconds afterwards there were two andys in the room <laughs> hey on this side i think this is a really really good question does it affect the tides yes um i, I can see harkin surfing his flagship into marienburg's walls like a surfboard and kind of snacked and glad you're okay so tech as are we all so, um and i oh do you want to go yeah, no, no, okay so I'll, I'll add a little tidbit to this and the andy will add a little tidbit to this first of all absolutely yes it affects the tides but it doesn't just affect the tides of water it affects the tides of magic yep. um like it's an ocean and there are some forces in the warhammer world that do sail on the tides of magic a good example of that is van geist the the ghost ship and yeah. if you were to encounter a ghost ship it's going to sail on the winds not usually on water um so on nights like that if you are at sea you are far more likely to see horrible scary things out on the ocean like the vampire coast they would 100 percent be active if Geheimnis, if it's like Geheimnis knocked or the uh, the chaos moon is really really big because for them they're going to be heavily empowered their their magic's going to be a lot stronger the vampires are going to be more powerful the zombies are going to be more alert everything is going to be at its absolute zenith so they that's when they're going to be pulling off their big scores so mm-hmm. like if you lived in a coastal town that's the night you should be m- the most scared because that's the most likely night something's going to come out of the sea to get you I think there's also something here that we need to realize about the Warhammer world, which is not the same as the real world. And it's a massive, massive difference in terms of how the world communicates with itself and each other, the different civilizations on it. And that's that the tides are not predictable in the Warhammer world. They're only predictable to a very small degree. The real world tides well, they ebb and flow like clockwork. We know how they work according to where the moon is. And they rise and they fall and they rise and they fall. But sometimes you will get the strangest and most unlikely of tides because of the influence of Morsleib. And it's not just the influence of Morsleib, remember, on one side of the world. So you'll see it when it's there and go, Morsleib's out, something's happening. The other side of the world does exactly the same thing. It's all about how the tidal forces are built by those moons. And as it gets closer and closer, it's going to have more of an influence upon the tides than man's leap plus all of the chaos that comes with all the magic too so if you're ever in your cell and in some sort of naval campaign for say the role-playing game realize that do you can't use the standard navigation expectations that you have from the real world you cannot simply go oh well we're almost at high tide let's go they will take the tide whenever they can because the tide is unpredictable. The Warhammer world is not like the real world at all. So get that into your heads if you are playing on that side. A yeah, great I, question, by the way, on yeah, the side. Yeah, and that for a lot of people that wonder, that's also why the elves tend to be so dominant in Seafair, because they have a much more fundamental understanding of the magical nature of everything that's going on. And if you don't have a good understanding of that, you're going to have a hard time navigating the seas. 
Um, 100%, particularly as well, you've got to remember that in the, in the Empire, which is seen as one of the great naval powers, it's only really had magic that's uh, acceptable for to them for the last 200 years, and none of their wizards, truly speaking, as a college as a whole, specialise on high sea magic. There's those who are better at it on the high seas, but it's not really the magic of high seas and I'm figuring out what Warsleep's doing. It requires several different wizards from several different disciplines to be able to master all of that, where your single high elf can go, well, I've mastered all those wins myself. So it makes it much yep. easier for them than it would be, for example, on an imperial vessel. All right, so uh, Morslib, where did it come from? What's it doing up there? All that jazz. So uh, the the TLDR of it, because we really want to get into a lot of the more modern age things involving Morslib, is that way back, the old ones, uh, I've, I've discussed this in a video and it's come up a few times as me and Andy have talked about it. The uh, the world used to be in a, as a sailor, it's, yes, it is super terrifying. Uh, yeah. yeah, Morslib, a, a lot of really people think, oh, it's just spooky moon that looks like it has a skull on its face sometimes which it only does that when it's really close but uh hope more so didn't drown nice you out last night Andy. <laughs> yep 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 uh you're the best muffin baskets appreciated thank you for all the all the tips guys really appreciate it so um as we kind of discussed in the past the old ones went out of their way to a attribute a perfect harmony to the warhammer galaxy really um but uh the solar system would probably be more accurate and uh, that included the moon and everything else everything works along a very precise timetable um that was very predictable and allowed them to be able to one of the things that we kind of discussed is that celestial bodies uh are very heavily tied into azir and the ability to predict the future. That is a very, very fundamental relationship. So having the solar system in a very precise harmony would make it far easier to be able to see what's coming down the line and be able to adjust and make uh, plans, so to speak, uh, for the old Effect ones. Effectively, the great plan was put in the skies. Yes. So uh, everything was fine until it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to skip over a lot of stuff, some shenanigans happen, and eventually the polar gates at the North and South Pole of the Warhammer world, which are way up in space. Uh, a lot of people think they're on the planet. They weren't. They were giant, um, like almost celestial things in and of themselves that were hovering in space above the planet. Uh, and both of them imploded. And when they imploded, they literally like sucked themselves into like a little thing and then blew outwards in a big cataclysm that almost wiped out the planet. Uh, luckily, the Slon were there to block the initial blow. But when that happened, a just horrific amount of magic and chaos just vomited outwards from a literal rip, two rips in reality in that moment. Uh, potential, well, there were actually more than two, but those are the two really, really big ones. But there were also some like chain reactions that happened on the planet as well. So basically... It, somebody you could kind of think of it as an entity literally took like a knife to the very concept of reality and just shredded it in a bunch of different ways and it was a horrible mess and there was so much we'll talk about the moon nation in a second because there was yeah, a will. moon nation until this very moment most likely um so you have to think that everything involving the gates which were portals into the ether like they were literal big gateways into ether that were so large that giant 
giant starships could pass through them. And they were designed so that magic would come out of them in a very specific way. So it would not be like harmful to the planet. Um, and when they imploded, all of that magic got crushed together, which is literally how you get dark. It is how you get dark magic. And then when they exploded, it was it was almost assuredly just massive, ungodly amounts of dar. Probably more dar and dark magic than you would ever see in any other circumstance, other than like throwing yourself into the ether itself. Maybe and more. <laughs> just to do a small interruption for clarity's sake, if you don't know what dar is, which is a possibility, go check out our Winds of Magic video. It's all explained in there. Yeah, and. Because there was so much, when there is enough dar and uh, or dark magic, and it is further compressed, it kind of uh, it will coalesce into what we know as warpstone. Warpstone is literally it is it is the winds of magic, which is a physical force in a sense, but one that most people cannot see. If it is compressed enough, it will become a literal solid material. That looks like a black, um, a lot of, funny enough, uh, a lot of the descriptions of it tend to describe it more as black with a greenish hue, but a lot of artists have made it vibrantly green with blackish oh. hues, which is kind of a funny little thing, but uh, it is a there's really- a, There's a loose reason. Many of the original descriptions of it actually went a little bit more cosmic horror, and looking into Warpstone was like looking into the depths of space and galaxy itself, and it gave off almost green, and sometimes in some of its original descriptions- purple with wisps coming off of it other descriptions of warpstone did other things as well but it's not a warpstone call so back to morsley yeah so uh really gnarly little stone but normally you're only dealing with like maybe a hunk this big or this big and like and if it's like if it's like bigger than your hand that's a pretty serious amount of warpstone but the uh the cataclysm or the great catastrophe was so bad that when all of that warpstone, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, when all of that uh, dark magic compressed together, it made a literal moon of warpstone, um, a giant, massive celestial body that basically came screaming out of this horrible wave of entropic energies, and it settled itself into the sky, and. I think it's worth interrupting on yeah, a couple of other little points here. Um, in various versions of the older background, uh, Morslieb is sometimes depicted as not just a uh, compressed dar, which in some respects was a later addition to it, but mm. the actual engine that drove that gate itself is Morslieb. It is the compressed, messed up piece of technology at the heart, which was crushed down like a black hole and crystallized into all warpstone the world would ever know that has been changed over time but it is worth noting that particularly if you're an older reader who's perhaps only read some of the original um, books or some of the old citadel journals or whatever you might uh, alight upon an old description which very much defines it as the gate itself and it wasn't so much ejected as became very much the later version of it but it was more pushed upwards from where it was sitting relatively solidly in the heavens yeah so viral this is actually an interesting question that uh you know shouldn't there be two if there were two gates but i think the idea behind it is it wasn't necessarily that the north gate for instance spat it out but more that the two gates shot out all of this energy that met in the middle 
and slammed into one another. And it was just this big, like completely encompassing the entire planet mess. And it's almost, I would say it's almost that when those forces collided, I almost wonder if that's what birthed Morselib as opposed to the just initial explosions. So um, generally speaking, I'll give a slightly different version. Um, the answer is no, there shouldn't be two because there isn't. So you immediately go, but there's two gates. And the story is generally, that, generally speaking that it's the northern gate that's responsible. But that's because the vast majority of the stories from the Warhammer world come from the northern hemisphere. So the ones that we know come from the hemisphere that's closest to it. And what happened down in the southern hemisphere over there, we don't really know. But we do have one story, and that's the actual story for why it's called Morsleep. Um, and that, I think, is worth um, iterating on. It's largely an Imperial story. It's popped up a couple of times um, in 3rd edition Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. It's mentioned. It's mentioned way, way back before, I think, 3rd edition Fantasy. And just to very briefly cover this, um, Moore went to the portal to shut it. And it's perhaps one of the reasons why he is now dead. If you go with the stories that you get and say the Tome of Salvation, it's possible after this event, Cain kills him. But there's a whole story to talk about there in regards what the gods did. But more went to that portal and because of the great horror that was coming, ejected the warp stone upwards and out so that it didn't affect the planet. Effectively, Morslieb was created by Mor, according to that particular story. And that may be true. Whatever happened in the Southern Pole is not covered anywhere that I've caught, ever. But this, this small story does pop up a couple of places, so it's at least there in the ether, so to speak. And if you want to know why it's Morslieb, that's the only story we really have, other than it's associated with death. And, eh, Maybe that's what happened. Maybe one of the gods did indeed go up there. And indeed, there's a lot of stories of the gods at the time of the cataclysm and what they did. And then when they eventually withdrew from the world because of the great horrors that were being wrought upon it. They're mostly, however, elven. Yeah, I will. I will add one alternative theory that I have uh, based on something Andy said earlier um, that I think could actually be fun to explore, uh, okay. which is that if we, you run with the idea that the Morselib, the Chaos Moon, is the engine of the original Northern Gate, which I, I do think has a lot of strength to it, of uh, that would have been like literally the nexus point of everything that went wrong. Um, there are notes in the lore that the realms of chaos or the chaos waste were initially created because after the gates exploded, what was left of the machinery fell to the planets and impacted into the poles. So what could be a really interesting idea is that maybe there are two, but where the northern one managed to go critical and ejected its warpstone core being Morslib into the atmosphere. What if the southern one didn't and actually fell to the planet and is in and it struck the southern pole? So it could be I that if you journey to the southern pole, you might find a, a big huge bump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You literally might find like a crater, like a moon crater that's made out of warpstone, which yeah, there could be. Could be way cool um yeah, yeah I, I think that's a really good theory i really love it um i'm also a, a, not a strong proponent of more moving forward but given the nature of how gods are represented in the warhammer world if you're actually going to spin it for what it was it would almost certainly be a tale of morai Heg, the elven god i don't think it's necessarily something for us to dive into today because we should probably have a stream about the elven gods because they are yeah, so yeah. impactful on the world as a whole because the elven gods in many respects 
are super influential and super real. They're definitely a thing um, in comparison to some of the other gods, which seem to have almost been spun out of the beliefs of others. The elven gods are quite different and worth um, a chat on. But the idea that Morai Heg perhaps was up there doing something in an attempt to try and stop it, um, it seems very likely, truth be told. Um, because they were all doing things at the time of what they refer to as the War in Heavens or the War of the Gods or whichever particular tale you want to go for. Um, what we know for certain is, out of all of this, is that Morslieb is ejected, probably from the Northern Pole, and becomes a moon up there, and it is made of warpstone. And there's lots of tales which suggest it's just a green moon, it's just that, but we know now, after many years of developmental uh, background being added to Warhammer, that Morslieb is most certainly not necessarily at its core. Who knows? There might still be an old one artifact at its core, crystallizing mm. that warp stone out of it, for all we know. But what we know for certain is everything that's on the outside is definitely warp stone. Yeah. So that is, to make it simple, that is the overall uh, creation myth or story of it. And uh, the, the thing that's very interesting about it is a lot of races kind of fundamentally witnessed it and understand the horror of what they were looking at. From the Lizardmen and the Slon to the, the Elves to the Dwarfs, they all literally saw this happen. And the second it did realize, that is not good. Uh, <laughs> because the Chaos Moon is such a fundamentally wrong thing that just looking at it is a profoundly uncomfortable experience. Because mm. it is so magically powerful and so oh, dangerous in a sense. I uh, cheers, you rock. What is the bad moon's effect on the fish people? <laughs> P.S. I hope the fishmen are possible topic this month. Mm, you know what? You may have just influenced a poll. Uh, hello, YouTube chat. You look radiant today as ever. Oh, I like how Twitch chat's being nice while YouTube chat's being an asshole <laughs> over there. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you, Twitch. <laughs> uh, thank you, Biofoot, so much. Uh, I will say, so appreciated. Uh, Oops, I, I would argue that the the fish people would be heavily influenced by Morslib. And would probably have a very interesting relationship with it. If I if I was ever put in a position where I got to design the fish people, I would they would probably be more obsessed with it than any race save for like the beastmen. Um, You've got to realize that their entire environment is influenced by it. Yeah. So uh, now, whether they would view that as like a negative or a positive would be a really fun aspect of the exploration of them. Um, I think if it were up to me, I would probably have like different disagreements within their culture about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, like sub factions that would view in very different lights. But um, after all, that that conflict is the source of all fun stories. Oh, yeah, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So what's so kind of talking about Morslib as a kind of a physical force? We've already talked about that. It does have a significant impact on the winds of magic, on mm -hmm. the on the um, uh, the oceans. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> gets <laughs> thanks, Thomas. <laughs> you wrote. I like. I like that y'all are. I like that people are just throwing money to be be just dicks to each other. That is. That's truly the way of the internet. <laughs> we stand in the middle, moderating them. So, um, what? But what's interesting is that Morslib itself uh, goes so far as um, just being aware of it can be a genuinely dangerous phenomena. Of that, it is the, there's kind of the whole you know 
thing that famous quote of like if you look into the abyss the the abyss will look back and in warhammer it's very obvious that the ether very much falls into that but morse lib is a literal manifestation of that in a lot of ways of that looking up into the night sky or the daytime sky if, if it's that part of the year and seeing the chaos moon looking at it is uncomfortable like mm -hmm. it can cause like your skin to start to feel weirdly itchy even if it's like really far away it could be a, a pretty profoundly uncomfortable experience and if you stare at it for too long bad things can happen and if it's close enough to the world where it's light it's greenish light is literally being cast on the world um so like you can see it you know where there's green moonlight you do not want to be in that light it yeah. is a it is a bad time um it will mutate you very very easily yeah, um, it's 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 warpstone yeah it is yeah. it's warpstone and it's almost huge amount of warpstone yeah it it there's also a lot of evidence that there's more to it of that it is not just erratic in its orbit because it's made of warpstone therefore it's following of the laws of reality seems to be more um Option Viper boom. Quickly. Wow, Viper. Um but what is one of the things that I think we should if if you're ready, Andy, we can go ahead and dive into I'm willing to dive into any part of it. Yeah, is there is a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence that Morselib may very well be sentient in a sense. Okay, we're going to start with that one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a big one. It's a big one. <laughs> I, I thought we were going to go through all the normal stuff first, but we're going down nah, into it's, the it's more slow. You got to go. I, yeah. Go okay. Slow, so nuts. I think um, if we're going to summarize this section, it would be what is Morsleep? Um, we've already covered the start of that, which is it's a great ejector yeah, it's warp stone. of warpstone yeah. in the sky. <laughs> So we've covered that, but is there anything on Wars Warp on Morsleep? Is Morsleep itself, because it's so magical, perhaps something more with that much concentrated magic in the real world? Is it perhaps somehow sentient, like a god? It's emitting presumably more magic than the Chaos Gates themselves. There's so much warpstone up there. So does that mean that it, it attracts demons, that demons themselves around the core of warpstone that lies there and reality breaking? I mean, we would have demons up there. There is no doubt. Mm. If we just follow the standard rules for how demons can and do not or, or will manifest, the chaos gates alone are a close enough proximity that demons can walk around up there at the top or the bottom of the world without any difficulty. Up there with Morsley, we're going to have demons. So immediately we've got populations up there that we know of etheric entities almost certainly do exist. And then it does start moving on to the possibility that the thing itself is alive. And there is a hint two of that is there not yeah so there are a couple of really important things to talk about that tie into this and that act as a branch to Just later talking <laughs> transformers oh more than God. meets the eye and uh biofoot uh just <laughs> biofoot just being in an abusive relationship with twitch chat <laughs> or with youtube chat <laughs> i didn't get the cheers there oh you're, yep. you just threw them up and up there sorry I yeah, yeah i did it yeah, you did. Hugs, hugs and hearts to YouTube. But see, um, see. well done, by Yeah, so Morselib has a couple of really interesting things. Something that Andy has talked about is the idea that, yes, when Morselib gets close, there are a lot of bad guys or uh, nefarious forces that will unleash powerful rituals and all these things. 
but Morselib itself seems to also be aware of when certain things are going to happen in the world um, and when a certain powerful ritual is going to happen. And when those things are going to happen, or like when a chaos invasion is happening, or when mm -hmm. some powerful demon is about to manifest, or uh, someone's about to ascend to a demon prince, or Vlad von Karstein's about to wake up all of Sylvania. Um, or Nagash is about to do his attempt to do yeah, the same. But yeah, yeah and like it comes really close. Like, it almost seems to be uh, a force that enjoys viewing these events to the point where it will often seemingly come into the moon or it will come into the sky and it will almost hover in place and refuse to move simply sitting there and watching everything that's about to happen. Thank you. I'm decide more. <laughs> and indeed we do love you Twitch chat, despite the banter. See yes. YouTube. <laughs> See a portion of YouTube. And, uh, so, and notable and we've, given some examples but even if you're playing like the warhammer fantasy roleplay game there is an event literally in the first part of the story uh the the first book where Morslib will show up and witness what's going to happen um yeah. almost as if it is watching and enjoying being an active participant and making things worse so there's a quite a lot of different ways to view this um hey Roderick. Um, I got a sense that Morsley moves narratively. And you know what? To a degree. From a does. meta point of view, that is extremely yeah. accurate. <laughs> from outside, yes. Um, but if we just simply look at what it is composed of, it is composed of, let's try and be scientific about it to begin with. And then we can wax lyrical about the other potential um, yeah. roots towards answers. Yeah, because there, there are some um, less bonkers explanations for why it does that. But yeah. Um, so the eight winds of magic are all exceedingly strong in a single broad aspect of magic in general. And Morslieb is not just suffused with all the winds of magic, it kind of is the winds of magic made manifest in the material plane in that it is a giant chunk of warpstone, which means, really importantly, it is at least one-eighth composed of Azir. <laughs> um, and now Azir is the wind that allows you to scry into the future, amongst many other things as well, but it is the wind of the future. So anytime a significant event is going to occur down in the Warhammer world, the amount of Azir that is attracted to that is significant and it draws in the moon in that the future event is coming and the moon moves towards that future event because it knows it's coming because the moon follows that great skein of Azir that is being swirled around and it can see the great swelling of magic that's coming that is about to occur and it is because of this, Morsleib that is, a sign of portents for anyone that is a seer, that anyone has any ability to look to the future. If they look up to the skies and see that Morsleib is full, they go, oh dear, that's a bad omen. That's a sign of the overall picture that Morsleib is attracted to big bad events. But if we take it further, it's full again. And again, something big is coming and the moon is coming into it as well. But it's because, scientifically speaking, Etherically speaking, if you want to go into your advanced etherics lesson, etherics 101, um, <laughs> it's um, the wind of Azir, the blue wind of magic that allows the moon to track its way over there. Or alternatively, you can view it in a very different way, because after all, Morsley, when it appears full in the sky, a part we've yet to cover is known, notorious for a force that enjoys viewers. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Partly I coughed after okay. we do that. I apologize. You can read yeah. that one. So it's like Lawhammer viewers. Yes. If, if you're watching Lawhammer, you are basically the Chaos Moon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're you're, you're one of the watch. demons sitting on it with popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> you are all Mars Liebers. Oh, that, that, that makes me laugh. Um, so Mars Lib itself is attracted. And when something big is coming, faces or a face starts to appear in it now the most famous face that we get and pretty much the only face that games workshop uses in any of its art is a skull it tends to go for um two deep pits like craters some sort of formation to suggest um the upper mandible and maybe the nose and it's leering down on the world however in the actual text it often takes other forms and there's a reason mm -hmm. that it doesn't get uh, depicted in the art it's because it's silly. No other way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. It's actually silly um, because it starts to leer, giggle. It can sometimes be seen to be laughing with a big hee hee hee. Um, it looks like a piece of John Blanche artwork from the 1980s. Um, it's a very much uh, a, a real entity and at points in various descriptions will have a literal tongue that lolls out and slops from side to side. It's clearly ridiculous. If you actually saw this, it would be anti-horrific rather than horrific, unless you actually saw it in real life, where it would be, in fact, terrifying. Um, yeah. So be aware that uh, the moon has a variety of different faces that it's given, and that does reinforce that concept that there is definitely some form of entity leering down. Yeah, and what I was going to say is... Uh... If there was a wizard trying to explain and like suggest the idea that Morsley was, of course, uh, while it's spooky, it you know obeys natural forces and yada yada yada, they would say something along the lines of, "Well, when people do these really big, powerful, dark rituals, like magic often attracts magic, like a mag uh, a magnet, like for like attracts like. Mm -hmm. So the moon is just being drawn in by forces that are very similar. But mm -hmm. the faces are the thing that kind of tends to give Morsley away." Um, as being something far, yeah, Majora's Mask is a very apt comparison of it like the, the 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 face on the moon, and um, to the point where Morselib often is literally reacting to things that it appears to be witnessing. Uh, where um, now, granted, whether this you could argue that this is merely the insanity uh, insanity inducing effect that it has on the people that are looking at it. Um, but there are all sorts of little hints about how it only presents under certain circumstances, uh, and it can only be seen seemingly when it wants to, like even almost going out of its way to reveal itself, uh, to certain individuals that are heavily involved in the events that are happening. Um, and, and this is where we have to start getting a little bit more complicated and straying into actually it's magic because there's no proper scientific description yeah. of some of the events that occur. Like, for example, if you go up to the barren hills in the Empire, Morslib is always full. If you go up to certain parts of the Chaos Ways, Morslib is always full. Hey, Joel! Uh, given Morsley's perceived actions, is it working towards the goal? We will, we will get to that. There is a character who is very heavily related to that. Oh yeah, we will definitely get to, get to that bad boy. Um, yeah. so we'll, uh, we'll hold that if you don't. I, I promise we'll get there. Properly, <laughs> we will. Um, yeah. so um, there are various parts of the world where Morslib is always visible and always full. There's parts of the world where the darkness of night is persistent and Morsley will always be full um there's also just that small moment of wait a minute if Morsley gets really big like fills up say let's just say half the sky 
which I know sounds ridiculous, but does happen. Yeah. Um, at very rare events during a great war against chaos, for example, Morsleib is often fooled to the most ridiculous of extents in the sky. Um, particularly nasty events, Morsleib gets enormous. If that actually happened, the Warhammer world would be torn apart by the gravitational forces if Morslib was that big and that close. But that doesn't happen. It just doesn't. Mm. What happens is magic is swelling. Magic is everywhere because Morslib is closer. Magic is swirling all over the place. And the big one you've got to always remember is Azir. Azir distorts what you see in the sky. The whole point of Azir in many respects and the way that it can tell the future is by the distortions that it makes as you see through the wind of Azir into the celestial objects that lie beyond. And Azir is the answer to almost every single last issue you might have concerning Morslib and what it does. How is it always fooled? Because through Azir, Azir is seeing it through that particular angle and makes it appear like it's there. Why is Morslib always gigantic? Because Azir allows it to be perceived that way without affecting. Why isn't the gravitational forces destroying everything? Because of all the magic in the air. There's lots of potential descriptions, none of which are necessarily always the case. One time it might be purely because of Azir. Another time it might be because there is a force trying to keep everything away. We're going to get onto that when we discuss the Lizardmen, for example, because they mm. are known for fucking about with Morslib. Yeah, big time. <laughs> so, yeah and, right. yeah, and even further, like, it's, you know, it's got dark magic involved, which means all of the winds are involved. So there's also a lot of Olgu playing tricks over oh, on yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Chaos Moon. And you're having all these crazy interactions all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the other things that Morslib kind of does as a bizarre entity, uh, like just looking at it as a celestial body, uh, another thing that it is prone to do, which is super fucking scary, is that sometimes it will... Uh, We've got a daughter. <laughs> sometimes it can... Oh, hi. Hi, Josie. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it'll make the appearance of its spitting, which is a really, really bad sign. And if you ever see that, for the love of God, run for your life. Because when it looks like it's spitting, it is quite literally a meteor shower is about to happen. Where the chances of anything coming from Mars <laughs> into one, they said, as green spits come out the side. What is that green puff of light? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, and it will literally be hawking loogies of itself, seemingly, onto the planet, which are big warpstone meteors that will so, uh, I'm, crash I, down I, and have horrible effects. Horrible uh, yeah. effects. I'll do a small interruption and say this is loosely what I was saying we're going to discuss in the future, but let's just do it now. There's a reason for this, and um, it's stating in a couple of places that Morslib is in a decaying orbit. It's in an orbit that is going to bring it back, crashing towards the Warhammer world. But there is a force out there that's making that not happen, and that's the Lizardmen. Yes, and uh, they're aware of, and um, this is a really important bit the chaos moon. They refer to it as the chaos moon for a very real reason. It mm. interjects and adds chaos to the great plan. The great skein of the heavens, the harmony of the spheres that were set up by the old ones right at the beginning of what they consider almost time, has been interrupted by this new thing that not only changes the nature of how the heavens interact with each other, but changes the appearance of the heavens, because there's so much Azir in particular being kicked out, but also Walgu, as for example was suggested, that makes it very difficult to perceive the great plan. But beyond that, the moon is falling, and they do relatively frequent 
and I say relatively, it's, and we're talking slant terms here, but relatively <laughs> frequent rituals to basically bounce that moon back like it's a ball. And every time they do that, parts of Morslib come shattering off in lots of different directions. Morslib spits, and you could argue, for example, that the barren hills in the Empire were created by meddling of the lizard men. Yes. As uh, ooh, down come shards of Morsley. Spit, 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 spit. Yeah, and just, just to give an idea of how devastatingly impactful these Morslib shards are, there's also a very strong connection with the Skaven, the origin of the Skaven, where mm. the what we know as the, the, the marshes of Skaven Blight, also sometimes known as the zombie marshes, were literally created by Warpstone Meteors. And they were, there was a big event hundreds of years before the Skaven first emerged where a whole bunch of meteors got uh, shaken off of Morslib and they came crashing down there, which depending on how you feel about the creation of the Skaven may have led to the rats that were there naturally mutating yeah. into something far worse uh, over time. But yeah, as Andy was saying, the, the Lizardmen of Tlaxlan in particular, which is the city of the moon, they are obsessed with Morslib. Um, to the point, uh, their their big bad lord Huynidit Tanukli, uh, which what a um, mouthful. Um, <laughs> uh, he is he's one of the few remaining second generation Slon, so he's like up there with Mazda Mundi. He has been trying to get rid of Morslib forever. Um, oh, there are some really fascinating notes about how he's tried to get rid of it over the eons. Um, sometimes he has attempted. Uh, you the usual strategy was to just try and push it out of orbit, um, which always didn't work um, now granted it has often pushed the moon further away which was a good accomplishment and even shook it to a pretty dramatic effect however this would be devastating for other parts of the world which the lizardmen would often kind of look at and be like eh. <laughs> like eh. <laughs> whatever we tried um when it don't <laughs> i mean yeah, but, it's hard uh, to deny it in this particular instance yes <laughs> yeah there also have been some really interesting attempts by the lizardmen by the lizardmen understand that morselib is made out of magic so there actually have been some notes where the slon have attempted to dispel morselib which is a very bizarre concept but the lizardmen believe it is fundamentally possible though they understand it is absurdly difficult um, of the idea of casting a ritual so powerful that they would just kind of wink it out of existence. Um, unfortunately, they don't seem to pull it off, but uh, it does open up some really, really interesting possibilities and considerations uh, in that they almost seem to treat it as a warp entity or like a creature born of the ether, which it fundamentally is. It is, yeah. Yeah, so like theoretically, it should be banishable back to the ether, which they're theoretically correct, but it's also just a massive amount to try and deal with. And as Andy mentioned, um, there might be some uh, further things. Uh, yes, Adoe Tega. Yes. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, Huin Tanukli is um, is um, uh, City of Miss. Yes, I got that backwards. He's Slan Hapek. So yes, it's Adoe Tega. I'm quite happy to admit I can't remember the Slan names off the you know, top. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Adoe Tega is the, the uh, Tlaxlan Slan. That's right. Um, but, um, anyway, so there have, there's a lot of interactions there. Uh, the Lizardman's special character of, uh, uh Tedoeko, the, uh, the skink priest who's like super powerful in heaven's magic. He is also very heavily involved with all the more slip shenanigans, um, which one of the things that's revealed very heavily through him is like Andy said, the Lizardmen are kind of in this big battle with the chaos moon because it messes with them so much. 
The Lizardmen are so obsessed with the idea of trying to figure out what's going to happen because a lot of their sacred plaques work along the idea of there being a predictable timeline. No, no, and no Morslib. Yeah, and no Morslib. Screwing up everything you can see. Yeah, because Morslib <laughs> didn't exist when the old ones created the, the sacred plaques. They, yeah. It wasn't a force. So with it being there, it introduces a whole bunch of potential issues that could make the plaques inaccurate. So yeah. uh, the Lizardmen are often having to spend, like a, a lot of people wonder why the Slons sleep so much. And it's really, they're not sleeping. It's more of they're either actual projecting themselves to go deal with issues, or they are basically sitting there doing calculations, trying to adjust prophecies and understandings for the influence that Morselib is having on the world, uh, which is I'm, very, very difficult. I'm going to do a rare thing, and I'm going to pick up a question that's been popped in the chat, um, because I do think that this one's worth drilling down. Oh, yeah, I there's agree. actually two answers to it. Um, one is the definite answer, and the other is the oh, but there's also this answer, and that is, for example, is Geheimnisnacht on a set date every year? Yes, some calendars put it between the months of Vorgeheim and Nachgeheim, and the clue is in the before Geheim and after Geheim. That's what those two month names mean, or is it on a truly random date each year? Now, the answer to that is yes, and yes, and I'll explain why. So, Geheimnisnacht is indeed a fixed event every year, as is Hexensnacht. So, there's two of them, not just one. Geheimnisnacht act is the one that most focuses in on largely because of shadows over bergenhafen um and it's a stress and constantly remember remembering it and the first slayer story being on geheimisnacht um the stress of the enemy within campaign and early fiction on geheimisnacht meant that it became more important out of the two but the extra part or is it on any truly random date now one of the army lists i can't remember which one off the top of my head i think it's warriors of chaos perhaps um no i think it'll actually be the beastman one doesn't really matter which one, <laughs> but it's got a nice little aside box that says Geheimisnacht is any night that Morslib is full. Now, that is not strictly speaking true in terms of the imperial calendar. So that's the calendar that's used in the empire. But if we look at the overall world where the influence of the imperial calendar has often bled into, for example, Norska, up into the Chaos Waste, there has been a lot of people from the empire who have wandered up there. Um, the term has come to be used in general for whenever Morslib is full in the sky when you pass out with the empire's borders and to the north, not to the south of the old world, where it holds the older terms so the answer to that is kind of yes to both but if you want to be strictly accurate geheimnis act is only on new year's day the very first day of the year each year but outside of the empire it is sometimes used in more general terms to speak to any point when morsley is full yeah that and that's that's a very uh, i'm sorry getting ahead but isn't there a connection between the forest goblins spider god and morsley don't they uh okay so that is yes, but that's also kind of a that's kind of an age of age of Sigmarism that tends to creep yes. back into fantasy because in Age of Sigmar, the bad moons so we'll we'll get to the bad moon aspect of Morslip here in just a second. Um in that so uh with Geheim and we'll we'll get to the dates in a second as well. I'm gonna wrap up the Lizardman side and then we'll continue <laughs> on from there. Um yeah, so uh basically the only thing you really need to understand about Morslip with the Lizardman is that they are kind of its direct opponent. Like the Lizardmen really and truly are the ultimate rival of Morslib. And there is a lot of really interesting stories from the Lizardmen perspective that talk about that and that the Lizardmen in their attempts to destroy or uh, banish Morslib have indirectly caused a lot of cataclysms involving it. Because whenever they mess with it, it, it either because it's causing like big shakes on it due to the disturbances uh, due to like a 
almost like a physical force hitting it because you know if you hit something magic made hit something made of magic with magic it's going to cause a pretty extreme reaction um but also you can almost see it as more slip kind of having a defense reaction um and this has resulted in things like the creation of the skaven um the creature of the barren hills who we'll get to in a bit and uh other really dramatic and horrible things uh perhaps even the destruction of um more time for instance and other similar events um so it, more slip is a nasty ball, possibly who knows yes uh, yeah maybe even the great maw so yeah. uh with all of that in mind with we can kind of leave the lizardmen over on their side because they while they interact with it it's more of kind of a back and forth um game of tennis than anything else but looking at dates uh just to kind of touch on that a little bit more um everything andy says 100 true and it leads to this really interesting thing of i think there's kind of a, a misunderstanding that can sometimes happen with authors in particular where um there's been some confusion about whether geheimnis knock is when a certain series of events occurs oh that means it's a geheimnis knock event rather than oh no it's a date mm -hmm. um and I, I think it's the term has been a little conflated in that it's supposed to be a date um rather than because morsely can become full anytime it wants theoretically um and it often does unpredictably which can lead to some really spooky scenarios uh, but it is also a predictable event because a lot of really powerful rituals will be orchestrated on that specific day um and there's often a big build-up to it of like all of the wizards in the world know it's coming up and people know it's coming up because those are days where they like prepare to not go outside they they board their doors they board their windows they make sure no light can get inside and they get prepped as if you know a natural disaster is coming <laughs> but um if you believe there's an andy on the moon now let's just don't yeah, um, so from there uh i think um hmm I I guess we should touch the bad moon aspect next. So Morslib okay. as a god, uh, I think is probably the best direction to go next. Um, do you want to yeah. lead us into that? Yeah. So um, there's a few things to open with here. Um, the Warhammer world, unlike the real world, obviously has two moons, as we've discussed. And one of those moons is, in the most general of senses, the bad moon, the evil moon, <laughs> the wrong moon, the chaos moon. But it isn't to all. Indeed, to many, it is the good moon, although they won't necessarily refer to it as that. A single example of that comes with many of the Northmen tribes up towards the north, where they actually don't perceive it as a bad moon at all. They see it as the giver of life. They see it as something that provides them with the irradiant energies of the ruinous powers and that is as far as they're concerned a good thing and they refer to it as gyronak the giver of life gyron being the green wind of magic which is in this case particularly appropriate um and as we move across the warhammer world there's a host of different species that actually worship the huge chunk of warp scone in the sky as a god or alternatively use it in their iconography and often at different points in their lore are either said to be worshipping the Chaos Moon or just reflecting it on their standards or some other equivalent or then going back to worshipping it and then going away from it again. One thing you tend to find though that 
out of all the communities that worship it, there tends to be one other key detail that's added as well, and that's lunacy. The idea of going mad, the idea of perhaps ingesting something that puts you into a heightened state of awareness, which could just be described as being a complete lunatic. Mm. Um, and quite a few <laughs> of the communities across the Warhammer world that worship the moon, or at least have the moon as an important part of their rituals, include this sort of aspect in their lives, including, for example, bad moon goblins or crooked moon goblins, all of whom have got a variety of night goblin-esque fun times with their mushrooms that induce their own types of lunacy, which come up more than once. But they're not the only ones. There's a lot of communities out there that hold Morslib at their heart of worship. And the last bit I'll add to that before I pass over and give uh, a slightly different angle from Sotek is that the more you worship a thing in the Warhammer world, the more it potentially becomes a thing. So perhaps a lot of this leering, twisted, skull-like face came with time as the expectation of this real power in the sky being sentient became real because of that. I will note, though, that if you want to try and place that at the heart of the goblins and the greenskins, I wouldn't because their magic tends to be much more internal than external they don't make other things what they want they just believe that they have what they want they don't really worship other moons because they've got gork and mork after all and the yeah. time oh i was oh, just about to say that yeah thank you for the wall uh Barbara wolf and Hannah oh Hannah. my goodness <laughs> mormons oh man i might have to use oh. that in the game <laughs> that is a terrible joke Oh, Hammond, you've outdone yourself. Oh, uh, which 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 Mormons are crazier though? <laughs> um, oh gosh, uh, all the all, <laughs> oh man, I'll never see Utah the same way again. Um, but uh, <laughs> so God moons, yeah, uh, bad God's moons. Moons. So, um, like Andy was saying, something that I think uh, tends to be a little bit of a misunderstanding because of all the banners and everything, um, is that. The I would not say that night goblins uh, I propose a temporary choice <laughs> until Hammond is defeated. <laughs> he, he's a menace. Hammond, <laughs> no, all of his jokes. Um, one of the um, one of the things that tends to I think be misconstrued because a lot of people see it like uh, the night goblins in a sense obsession in a lot of ways with the bad moon is that they think oh well they're like worshiping it like it's it's a deity to them but it's really not. Um, it is a very important figure to their culture and they do treat it more as an entity as opposed to like, you know, just a celestial body. Um, so it, they seem to in very many ways think of it as like a creature. Um, and uh, but for the night goblins, you have to keep in mind that the night goblins have a very particular relationship uh, with the world where they are. They hate the sun. They literally most greenskins refer to the sun as the evil sun. Uh, because it's bright and it's hot and it's really unpleasant for them. But uh, most greenskins only care about the evil sun because they live out in like the badlands or the various wastelands of the world. So the sun is very hot and oppressive, but it's just part of their life and they deal with it. It's also worth adding that if you do properly subscribe to the greenskins fungus um, aspect, there's certain um, lassitudinous effects that the sun will have upon them as well, meaning that they will fight less effectively under full sunlight. That's, again, assuming that you take that on as truth, which Games Workshop clearly do. Yeah, and you tend to see, like, orcs in particular have a lot of respect for the sun. They use the sun on a lot of their iconography, whereas yep. goblins tend to use the moon. Um, and it's because orcs 
probably see the sun more as a challenge whereas goblins go oh that's unpleasant i'm gonna go hide away i'm gonna go hide in the forest or we're gonna go hide underground uh or we're gonna go hide in all these other things because that's how goblins tend to deal with those kinds of things but the night goblins are kind of an extra special case because they live in subterranean places where they very, very rarely deal with almost any form of light other than just like basic glowing fungi or like dwarven torches or what have you. And because of that, to them, the sun is like genuinely agonizingly painful uh, to the point where they just won't go out during the day unless it is like a really desperate situation. Um, But when they go out at night, they still have to deal with the moons. And they seem the night goblins have come to an understanding that manslib, the regular moon, doesn't really affect them that much other than it's bright and a little annoying. But the bad moon does affect them. It does. They can feel its effect. They feel it almost like it's looking at them, which is why they are. Oh, sorry. Carry on. Yeah, no, no. Uh, And they to the point where and we kind of talked about how the chaos moon often seems to have faces. It probably doesn't help that night goblins are often high on something and or are dealing some form of hallucinogenic to themselves, which probably makes the chaos moon even scarier than it already is. They are terrified of the bad moon, but because they're terrified of it, they respect it because green skin culture very heavily revolves around that. And add to that, if we put our scientific magic hat on, so we're back to advanced etherics 101. Um the chaos moon when it is full when morsleep is full floods the world with magical energy the eight winds of magic or more if you believe in such things go watch our winds of magic stream um the eight winds of magic flood across the world and that changes people um people who are already slightly angry become angrier people who are filled with passions and lusts get more passion filled more lusty there is quite literally an effect upon mortal creatures on the world when the chaos moon is full there is more magic and thus people are affected that is the very source of lunacy and Lunacy is, in many respects, the craziness that comes with the full moon, something that the bad moon tribes in particular are almost hand in hand with because they are often high on mushrooms. In many respects, it's what they're looking for. They have a strong association with it because when that moon is full, in many respects, it enhances their already drug-addled state. So it actually makes them more. They're both terrified of it while simultaneously being aware that it can feed them. Um, now, this is not something that they sit and have a good think about. This is more of an almost yeah, like an innate thing. feeling, yeah, an innate feeling, and that has turned out into a part that has been manifest in their culture. Their culture doesn't so much worship it. Let's use the word perhaps respects it for whatever yeah. it, the individual tribe believes it is. And this is where I like. I prefer to be much more cagey because to try and suggest that there is an overall answer for all green skin tribes is a massive overestimation they make Mm. huge mistakes all the time they just make up shit according to what their local boss thinks and that boss might think something truly insane according to how it's feeling about whatever is around it and they'll just come to believe that slap it on their standards and wander around as if that is the case and for them it probably is to say that there is a single answer here is to do an injustice to goblin society which is far more deeper and complicated than simply there's one's answer fits all yeah uh, but the last few things i do want to say revolving more slip in the goblins in particular is that there are a couple of uh theories floating around or ideas that have been proposed by goblins that are worth examining about why a lot of them obsess over it so much 
in that a obviously they're out at night a lot so they see it um what's interesting about the night goblins in particular is that they care a lot more about the chaos moon in all of its phases as opposed to just when it's full uh because mm -hmm. they often have a lot of iconography in its crescent form as opposed mm -hmm. to just its full form uh they make a lot of their helmets or standards into like a grinning crescent moon uh which is of course super duper famous and uh one of the things that's really interesting is they are not unaware of the fact that it is green um and green skins are very obsessed with the idea that uh there could be a relationship there, there are two moons there are twin moons maybe they're like gork and mork maybe like gork and mork the bad moon is the cunning one maybe it's the morky moon whereas manslip is the gorky moon uh, there is a lot of postulation there among green skin philosophers <laughs> um <laughs> but uh uh yeah boss i understand it yeah boss yeah yeah uh and and goblins have right, a lot boss. of that very deep uh relationship there however what's very interesting is goblins have uh night goblins in particular have so much fear which in a green skin sense often is equated with respect um in that if they're afraid of something they will often attempt to emulate it by designing their armor to look like it or have standards of it or what have you uh, but for the night goblins in particular, they have such a strong relationship um, with Morslib. And you could argue so to the forest goblins and even the plains goblins, uh, the wolf tribes as well, that one of their very famous spells, one of their most powerful spells is the curse of the bad moon, um, which they unleash literally creates a green skinified bad moon that will show up on the battlefield and unleash utter havoc um and it is it's not the real moon right it's not like the moon itself blessing them it is a green skin interpretation of the moon which often has a goblin face on it and is hooting and hollering and giggling and making a racket as it erratically runs flies around the battlefield unleashing crazy amounts of horror and death now it's not going to like mutate generally it doesn't do what you would if you understand a lot about morselib it doesn't do what you would maybe expect morselib to do instead it tends to be more unleashing madness screwing with perception or just yeah, ripping people apart with etheric green skin energy um which is very lunacy. very interesting yeah um and it's also worth stating that quite a few writers um have pitched that that's not morselib at all it's manslib that they're actually associated with um, uh, one of the reasons why it's painted yellow rather than green. And that's their justification for it. We all know the real reason it's painted yellow is because that's pretty much what John Blanche did for his Night Goblin sketches that were fucking awesome. <laughs> Who really cared why yeah. it was the case? The why it was the case came later. And justifications have changed for that, where in some cases it's obviously Morsleib, right? Others will say, no, it's just how the Greenskins approach Mansleib, the dominant moon, the bigger moon. They actually see that as the more fearsome one. So that's something to consider. Don't try and immediately if That's for true. example you're building a role-playing version of it don't try and immediately go well obviously if it's bad it must be more sleep and that's what i'm going to make my goblin tribe be no try to think a bit inventively think what those poor little goblins think when they look up in the sky that tiny little more sleep means nothing to them it's tiny and constantly smaller than the far bigger one the bigger one's the scary one because that's that big scary huge thing up in the sky and it's most of the time in a crescent so it makes sense that many of the moon night goblins would be looking at Mansleep rather than Morsley as the source there. So if you are looking to add a little bit of shades of grey to your background, do think about it and consider that as a possibility. After all, we all know that green skins in general are impressed by size. Yeah. 
it actually, if you want, and there is the idea that Manslive on average is going to be very bright because it's literally reflecting sunlight. So they would look at that and be like, oh, it's like the evil, it's like the evil sun's night cousin <laughs> where it's brighter at night. Therefore it's worse. And if you're doing a role play thing, if you want to do something really fun and really mess with your players and have a good time, you could literally introduce two warring goblin tribes where one thinks the bad moon is manslip and the other one thinks the bad moon is more slip and they're fighting over it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, And that's the sort of thing you should try to think about um, because the Warhammer world is massive with so many different cultures out there that trying to just make them all monocultures in many respects weakens just how big that world is. Hi, Lincoln. Uh, do the non-greenskin goblins have any ties to Morslip, the hobgoblins and Noblars? I would say yes, though it's not as strong, uh, because they are often tribes that, like, they live out in the daylight. They live out, uh, uh, so they are not as night-dependent, which often leads to that particular obsession. It's there, I would say, but hobgoblins are also, like, criminally underdeveloped. We don't know yeah. a lot about hobgoblin culture, um, particularly, like, because... Yeah, because yeah. most hobgoblins we know are the Chaos Dwarf hobgoblins, who their culture has been co-opted by the Chaos Dwarfs. <laughs> Whereas the, the hobgoblin Khanate, we know little bits about them, but we don't know a lot. And yeah. Noblars have been completely subsumed by ogre culture. Um, so they probably did have a stronger association back in the day. Um, but like I would say hobgoblins, considering they live so far north in the eastern steppes, they have to have some kind of relationship with Morslib. Because it would be such a dramatic power that far north. But yeah, hard to say. I, I would basically say, yeah, agreed. Um, the lack of information about them um, leaves us with just the general information. And the general information is that all cultures in the Warhammer world are aware of what sits in the sky. Morsleep is fucking terrifying. So that's going to change your culture in one fashion or another. I what I would say if you're wanting to run some ideas with the Hobgoblin Kane, as far as you have to remember, they're a very, very like they are the wolf tribe of the Greenskins. Very, very big on giant wolves. And wolves yeah. have a very strong relationship in the Warhammer fantasy with, with mm. the moons. Yeah, you'd um, want to so, tie that in, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. If anything, they would either probably like go into a frenzy when Morslib goes crazy because the wolves are so up and at it. And that might yeah. be when the that could be when the Conate said it's most dangerous is they go on like these wild that. rampages when Morslib gets yeah. big. So yeah. It works quite well with the existing Warhammer rules as well, because as we're going to move on to with Moonclaw, Moonclaw also has rules for when Morslib is full. Yeah. And it would be a very easy way of incorporating that and perhaps even tying the two together if you ever made a future version of the pair of them that work. Yeah, I think there's definitely something in that. It's quite cool. Yeah, because like if I was running a Wolf Rip thing and I was doing something like in the far north, it could be fun where you have chaos tribes are terrified of when Morslib's full, not because of the effect it has on them, but because that's when the hobgoblins go the most crazy and they start attacking everyone. When they're was build. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that would work really well. Um, I'd also like to just pick up one again. I don't pick up many of these questions, but I'm going to pick this one up here because it's both. Um, Morsleib does indeed reflect light like anything else, so it has phases, but it also generates its own light. And that's potentially why, we didn't discuss this earlier, but I was going to bring it up, it's potentially why it's always full on um Nacht and on Hexenstag. And that's because the generators, the old one machines inside, that's when they wax. And they, unlike the warp stones surrounding it, are on a consistent beat. So they've got a power hmm. surge that happens every six months, for example, causing the whole moon to glow, which means it's always full because the moon itself is emitting light rather than it reflecting light. So it might move from a very 
thin crescent moon the night before to glowing. And beyond that, any other time it's full when it shouldn't be full according to wherever it is in the celestial pattern that it's currently jogging through. It could be some form of surge. But that's only one answer amongst many. It could just simply be magic itself is working on a particular cycle for one reason or another. It could be a host of different answers. But the answer to your question is both. Yeah, and there there are notes that its phases are erratic as well. So like it won't do what you think where it like goes away and then comes back. There are like there are notes about events happening where it's like really big and full and enjoying what's going on and then the good guys win and they like kill the chaos lord or the sorcerer or the demon. Yeah, and then crazy. like literally the next day it's it looks as if the moon is like tucking its head away in disappointment because it's going into a crescent phase. Mm -hmm. um as it retreats and other times like andy said it's so small in the sky you can't even tell it's like a little it's almost more like a star where it's like a little pinprick so like you wouldn't even be able to tell if it's phased because it's so far away um without like a telescope or something which if you have one don't look at the moon it will not end well for you <laughs> but um in any event uh so we've talked about the goblins with it the other culture that's really important really really important with the moon are the beastmen the beastmen are deeply like of all the races in the Warhammer world, the beastmen of the old world in particular, but like I would say globally beastmen are, they are the moon race. They are all about the chaos moon. They are very deeply involved with it. They understand it more fundamentally than any of the other races. And I would argue that a lot of it is probably because they were kind of born. Uh, there are a lot of suggestions that they kind of view themselves as uh, kindred spirits. And as it ascends, they ascend. And as it retreats, they retreat. Uh, and they have a very strong... The beastmen perform rituals every single time the moon gets big and full. They yep. will go out of their way to make offerings to Morslib. To, to hold orgiastic rituals is usually, for whatever reason, usually the term they go with, um, to celebrate uh, Morslib being full, Morslib being powerful. They have a very deep fundamental relationship with Morslib that I I would say is accurately viewed as worship in the cases of some uh war herds. Now it's not gonna be all of them. Uh, yeah. All all war herds are different. You know, some of them worship like an individual chaos god, some of them don't uh like are more of a like an undivided nuance, but I would say the vast majority view Morslib as a borderline divine entity. Uh, that they make offerings to, they give sacrifice to, they feast in its name, they attack in its name. When they see it's full, they believe it's speaking to them. Their shamans are calling out to it, and they associate, if they see Morselib spit, they'll go on these crazy long epic journeys to find where the meteor landed, because that was a gift from Morselib. And when they find it, they'll carve it and build up all these stands around it and turn it into a, uh, a herdstone. Um, most herdstones, not most herdstones, but a, a large amount of herdstones are warpstone meteors. Mm, um, I'd say a, a chunk of them rather than a, a chunk. Stuff. Okay, a chunk is are, old, are old waystones as well from the perverted waystones from the elves. Yeah, which this, um, uh, unless Andy wants to add anything in particular about the beastman's relationship to us, this does lead us to a beastman character. It does. I'm only going to add one thing before we go to that character who is fucking awesome. Um, and that's that I would um, modify the most related to the moon with equal most because I definitely say the Skaven have as much connected to that moon as the Beastman. But the Skaven don't exist. So technically, he's 100% correct. <laughs> well, we'll swing around to the Skaven because there's a really interesting 
little mm. topic to have about them. There's lots of fun with that green cheese in the sky. Yeah, the green cheese. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there is uh, Morslib, um, uh, which more people are aware of this nowadays because he has become more popular with time. Funny enough, uh, since Warhammer ended, because he was a fairly minor character at the time, which was, he was a shame. tiny character. Really, um, I mean, he's yeah. basically just a page in an army list, and that's about it. Yeah, uh, which is good old Moonclaw. Um, <laughs> which there was a particular event, uh, which we'll we'll kind of talk about with what Andy was saying earlier with the Lizardmen. Uh, they are there is a direct note that this is related. Morselib got really big, like bigger than it's been probably since Asvar Cool's invasion, um, where it it's described as looking like the belly of a pregnant hag <laughs> hanging in the sky, where it was taking up almost the entire sky. And then something happened, which we know is that the lizardmen seem to have smacked it to get it away from the world. Basically a giant lizardman baseball bat. Get out of yeah. here. But before it left, it left a present, which is that it, sh it uh, vomited out a meteor that looked like an egg. And this meteor came down and slammed into the barren hills of the empire. And turns out it was an egg. Uh, because it cracked open on the impact and uh, it was a what's actually terrifying is that it's noted that it wasn't like most warp stone it was purified warp stone it was like a concentration of warp stone that is so much scary if you've watched andy's Lawhammer, you'll know that purified warp stone way fucking scarier than most warp stone it is a significantly more powerful resource that is much more dangerous and this one was hollow and it cracked open and a bunch of nasty viscous fluid came out and emerging from it was an, a creature known as Moonclaw. A lot of people think he's a beastman technically under technical definitions. He's not because he's not a, like a natural creature of the world. He's an alien. There's really no other way to say it. He's, he's literally a moon man, a creature thing. Um, but he emerged fully grown and was a, he is a horrifying gross nasty creature that is so deeply associated with warp stone that he is always burning with green black fire um like he looks like a horrible little hell fiend moving around and the second he came out um, now he does kind of look in a like a beast man that he has very goat-like features he's noted yeah. to have goat eyes he has horns which of course beastmen are very very big on horns um that's a very notable part of their culture and moonclaw started doing things and the second he arrived on the planet like we said the beastmen came looking for him because hey warpstone meteor could be a potential herdstone and they met moonclaw and the second that they saw that he was quite literally kind of blessed with the influence of the the chaos moon they threw themselves at his feet and functionally worshipped him and moonclaw got to work and he is very very scary because while he is insane um, he's, he's known for being just as erratic and bonkers as Morselib itself. He has a purpose, a very specific purpose where he is moving around the old world, targeting elven waystones. And he's trying to either convert them into uh, herdstones through profane rituals or just tear them down, which if you know what those are for, you should realize is a terrifying fucking situation. This is, um, loosely speaking, this is one of the events that leads to the end of the world um, because the network 
of waystones is an essential component for the vortex working that sucks all magic out of the world and breaking up that network here and one presumes possibly elsewhere because there's nothing to say that this manifestation is unique there's possibly other versions of this elsewhere True. in the world doing similar things. And of course, there's multiple readings we could make here. Just because it believes it came from the moon doesn't mean that it did. It's very possible it's nothing more than a manifest demon because there's almost certainly demons up there that somehow through magic allowed itself to continue existing on the material plane. There is nothing more than the manifest beliefs of the beastmen that are down below who have been constantly worshipping this thing for thousands of years. The fact that a demon is birthed and is almost beastman-like is no surprise or alternatively it literally came from Morslib, and it's entirely up to your own interpretations for your own games out there how you want to do it but it believes in its lunacy that it comes from there and again it's worth bringing up the classic reframing of madness lunacy with anything associated with Morslib. this is going to this is very much a consistent thread throughout almost all of the different manifestations of anything to do with Morslib, which is why in general tying for example as we discussed earlier the bad moon madness to Morsley rather than Mansley sort of makes more sense, which is why you tend to find that writers who've gone in that direction rarely have their hands slapped too hard. Mm. Um, but looking at uh, Moonclaw, one of the things that's... There are two really bizarre things about him that do lead uh, lend credence to his idea that he is child of the moon. Um, uh, you know, the, the son of the gravid orb is one of his titles. And the thing about Moonclaw is that he is not alone. Moonclaw has a brother. The, the lunatic prince has a brother. That's his other title, which is awesome. Um, and the thing about uh, his brother is that Moonclaw's brother only comes out when Morselib is full. And its name is Umberlock. Uh, and Umberlock is a bizarre two-headed hound thing. thing? Uh, um, we, we have some very distant kind of black and white art of it and Moonclaw, but mm -hmm. um it's it's difficult to really make out what umberlock is uh and he's he's just it's described very loosely so you can kind of do your own thing with it all we really know is that it has two heads it walks on four legs and it acts as a sort of mount to um Moonclaw. so when umberlock appears Moonclaw gets up on his back and the two of them go running around causing havoc and Umberlock makes Moonclaw significantly more dangerous than he already was, uh, because not only is he now far more mobile, but his power seems to grossly increase when the two of them are together. Uh, Umberlock, so like Umbra is in darkness. Um, so U-M-B-R-A-L-O-K. But um, what's, what's very interesting there is that uh, Umberlock can only manifest when that happens. So Umberlock seems to be almost more of a traditional demon or like uh, a demon that because he can only appear when the winds of magic are strong enough. Whereas Moonclaw has a far more physical presence, um, which is very interesting and they're considered brothers. So I do think it leads a lot of credence to the idea that Andy suggests that Moonclaw very well could be a type of demon who has figured out a way to just stay physically present at all times which would go further to demonstrate why he is fucking terrifying because he is breaking one of the fundamental laws of demonhood and that he's not 
he has managed to make himself a physical body, um, which he shouldn't be able to do that. And Andy, you're muted. <laughs> Um, uh, um, yeah, so because I was typing there, um, yeah, that's uh, I think that's a really important point to make because demons, just in case you don't know, cannot stay inside the material realm for very long unless there are specific circumstances, for example, an area that is suffused with magic um, and allows it to stay there. A classic example of that would be a summoning circle that is fueled with magic, allowing the demon to stay manifest within it. Another example would be during a great swelling of magic which is uh, one of the great incursions of chaos for example then demons can pop up and stay up for a very long time because there's so much magic flooding the world but normally no no matter how much magic there might be the demon will last for a small amount of time and then just fuck off back to the realms of chaos but if this is the case and this is effectively a, a beastman like demon then we have ourselves a very unique and scary situation. It's not unique. There's a few of these kicking around, um, but it's relatively unique. And it's certainly in terms of what we know it's doing, which is dismantling the safety network around the world. Massively fascinating. If you're looking at the overall plan of the dark gods and what they plan to do. Yeah. And uh, furthermore about Moonclaw, the other thing, the, the other two things that he's very associated with is he is, in many ways, an embodiment of Morselib, in that he is a walking entity of madness. So, one character that a lot of people probably think about when they're thinking about Moonclaw, and would, and I'll talk about just very briefly, is Morgur, who is very similar to Moonclaw in a lot of ways, and that they are both bizarre, non creatures that kind of come from very weird places, but. What's what really separates them, and I think is the best way to demonstrate the difference between them, is Morger is more of who we'll talk about another time, uh, is more of a manifestation of mutation, physical corruption. Yeah. Whereas Moonclaw is more of a representation of mental corruption and the moon. Because I, moon I think that's a really good way of putting it, actually, because um that's something that we separated in fantasy roleplay four, where your your corruption could manifest in one of two ways, physically or mentally. And that had to be done because elves literally don't mutate, but they do draw corruption and they can be affected by it. And that came with their mental state changing. And we're not simply talking about um, insanity here. It's quite separate to insanity. It's literally a mutation of your mind. It's when your mind, your etheric component parts that make your thoughts work, stop working the way they should do not because of mental instability but because of chaos it's actual corruption in your soul and i really like that as a split between the two one of them being a manifestation of physical mutation another one being a manifestation of mental mutation i think that works really neatly for the pair of them yeah and uh the thing that really i think goes to show that uh quizzer thomas what about possession like what if Moonclaw is a demon possessing a beast man or a bunch of biological soup shaped in the form of a beast man that could very well be true um because right so i'm gonna dive in this one hard possession yeah, in the warhammer world is not like the real world uh, uh exorcist style possession from the movies where something hmm. gets possessed and it wanders around there and priests come along and get them out i mean it can be a component of that but possession in the warhammer world tends to be short-lived 
and absolutely deadly for the soul that is possessed. It tends not to last for long. Demons burning out bodies is not uncommon. There's a few stories about how that manifests. There's a lovely couple of sections and a couple of books from the fantasy roleplay side about this. And if you should be mm. a powerful enough soul to take something like a greater demon within you, it will probably burn you up within hours. And you will mutate, become something strange and weird. And this is very much not what's happening with Moonclaw because Moonclaw is a permanent possession, so to speak, if it was a possession, something that would normally be considered to be impossible. But again, perhaps that is the case, which is why it's a good question. Um, it could be the case. It's just exceedingly unlikely given the normal set of rules we have. But he is a one-off character, so exceedingly unlikely happens nine times out of ten. Yeah, I will I will note, the only time you tend to see long-term possessions that have any chance of survival, they're elves. Um, it, oh, it, like Malice Dark elves. Blade. Yeah, like Malice Dark Blade has uh of course um uh, he has um uh uh Zarkan inside of him, but Zarkan's also very heavily tied to artif a certain artifact that yeah. so there's like a bit of a weird circumstance there, but there and are it's also more communication rather than possession. Um yeah, yeah where it's like there there's a weird it, that one had the if it was not for the artifact, Zarkan would have just eaten malice. And Zarkan talks about that a lot. Um, but Zarkan they have a <laughs> yeah, relationship. An awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are also like elves um that are known as anointed um from the old cults of pleasure that took in uh demonettes into themselves, but they weren't able to handle anything more powerful than demonettes generally. Worth saying that they didn't necessarily take demonettes within them, that they are just purely willing to accept what they are type creatures but there's, yeah that's a, there, there's a good bit in the anointed that i think would make for a really good stream because there's quite One a lot day. Quite complicated but that's way off in the future so uh, see before he related to the moon empress could uh his brother be a beast uh so they're probably not related uh we'll talk about the moon empress actually here in just a minute um but uh beast fate okay so be beast fate. Beast fiends are a particular, a very specific concept that have a very strict definition of beastmen, and this is according to a single author. I will note as well this there's this was never repeated as a concept. Yeah, um, I think it was Rob Sanders. Um, Can't recall who wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Rob Sanders. He introduced the concept in the Archeon series. Of Archeon went to the Southern Pole, and he had to figure out what the hell he was going to populate the Southern uh, uh, Pole with. Which we know, according to the Beastman Army books, that the Southern Chaos Waste are covered in beastmen. There are fuck tons of beastmen down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened was that uh, he decided to um, he filled it with a kind of like an advanced species that he dubbed as beast fiends, which are beastmen that um, mated with demons and created like half hybrid creatures, which is a very like it. It's a very difficult topic, but because it's in the Southern chaos, Waste, it's like ah, maybe kind of, um, but it's very weird and it's never really been used since then uh, because it doesn't really make sense anywhere else in the world because Anytime they tried to introduce, like in the Libra Chaotica, there's an awesome section about what succubi and incubi are, which are demons that wanted to take on physical forms. And the demons had to go through this super fucking elaborate set of situations. But the only thing they succeeded in doing was creating bodies that did not have souls that they could then possess and use as their own. And that was the furthest they were able to go with that. Um, there are characters in the setting who claim to be the descendants of demons. I personally don't think that's possible. I think those characters are all full of shit 
and they are either created by someone that was possessed by a demon, um, which maybe had some interesting effects, or alternatively, they had mundane parents and are just trying to boost up their own legends. I'll add that um, I don't think they're necessarily full of shit. There's lots of um, examples of etheric entities that have somehow managed to move into the real world. The classic example would be descendant of God, which is just a different way of saying descendant of demon. Um, True. Because they are ultimately the same sort of entity. They are an etheric entity, but perhaps aligned to something different or perhaps aligned to nothing. I think it would be possible under certain circumstances. I wouldn't eradicate it entirely, but I will nevertheless still strongly support the central thesis that I think they're full of shit. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Beast Fiends... I, I always like to have the shades of grey. Yeah, yeah. If if Beast Fiends <laughs> do exist, they are probably individuals, not a race. Um, and even if they do exist as individuals, they're uh they're very, very rare. But Umberlock would not fall under the definition of a beast fiend at all because his body is etheric. He only can exist yes. when the magic is strong enough. I think the answer there is is Mooncloak related? No, not really. And could this burn? No, not really. So but but still fascinating. <laughs> Uh, and then Riggs here. Thank you, sir. Oh, I uh, that one. First, thanks for all the streams. You're welcome. Second, any connection between Morrison and the Great Horn Rat? Yes, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> so uh, the last thing, uh, last few things we're saying about Moonclaw, just like uh, Morslib, one of Moonclaw's very innate powers that's fascinating and why I talk about that he represents mental corruption is that he has an ability known as Wave of Insanity, which <laughs> is literally that Moonclaw is such a perverse concept, an entity that just looking at him or being around him causes your perception of reality to get really messed up. Um, and well, yeah, and that he he uh, literally causes friend and foe their ability to understand what's going on around them is very very heavily hurt by him being there because just looking at him causes your brain to start struggling. Uh, in that he, in, in tabletop terms, he literally caused everyone around him to gain the stupidity rule. Stupidity trait, yeah. Um, but it basically represented that he was he was making people just go absolutely loony, <laughs> pun intended. Um, said, yeah. Correct use of the word. But uh, yeah. And that is his fundamental relationship, is that he is madness in a lot of ways incarnate. Um, I really like tying it to the mental mutations. I think that works really well. And it also um, creates a slightly different way of viewing creatures like the Jabber Slide as well. Um, particularly yeah. given the close relations between them being from the same army list, for example. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely something in there. I feel like there's a connection that should um, that should be made there. Yeah, like that a lot. Yeah, the other thing that's actually super interesting about them is a lot of people would probably expect that mm. being a so-called child of Morselib, that he would draw in the Winds of Magic uh, which he is a wizard, like he can't use magic. He can wield, I think, shadow magic and death magic, if I remember right. Oh, he had wild, didn't he? Uh, wild is, uh, I think he could pick between those yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wilds yeah. being the fundamental beastman lore, um, yeah. which is just their version of Dar. But yeah. um, what's interesting about Moonclaw is that he doesn't actually draw in magic in the sense that he can like use more of it. He actually repels magic uh, because he has pretty significant magic resistance. And that it almost seems like Morselib or himself is able to affect the winds to protect him from harmful incarnations of magic, which mm. is really weird and really interesting. 
Um, cause a lot, you would think that it would be, oh, he's able to draw in magic and therefore use more powerful spells, but it's more that he's able to manipulate the winds around him so that it, magic cannot be used to harm him. Um, unless the wizard doing it is very, very good at controlling the winds of magic or absorption. There could be something else. Yeah. Or he, yeah. Um, theoretically yeah. He could be absorbing it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's very, very interesting. And then the last yeah, thing he okay. does, uh, which he can only do when the moon is full other than summoning Umberlock is that if Morselib is full, he literally can make a gesture and call upon his parent to defend him. And Morselib will start spitting meteors onto the battlefield, which is insane. Because it, it's not like he's casting, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's not like he's casting Comet. He literally like reaches up his claw and goes, and then a few seconds later, Warpstone meteors start impacting the battlefield. Honest is it? Yes. Yeah, which uh, I will say is probably the absolute strongest support that he is what he says he is. <laughs> but in uh, many respects, though, it could just be a spell. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to always add those shades of gray. Um, me personally, if I'm writing and using it, I'm definitely writing and using that character from the perspective that everyone believes it is what it says, including itself. Um, however, as to whether it is that, I think um, you'll find that Games Workshop will never completely pin those things down because it almost lessens the lore to do so because it means that then that is a thing rather than it could be a thing which in the mystery in many respects means more things could possibly be the case in future yeah and they mm. very really like tying writers down to well if you're doing that thing it has to be that because that's what that is they'd much rather say well we've got this thing already why don't you do your thing and we'll try to make sure that they don't necessarily uh, let's say contradict each other while simultaneously still existing. You've got to try and make everything massage into place. And yeah, I, I really like where we've landed in terms of its uh, description, though. Yeah, it works uh, really well. And I will just note a couple of little random comments. Uh, Bellicor was possessing a Norskin when this happened, um, which you know you could argue uh, like he is his father, but it's also through a possession instance. Um, Bellicor likes possession, even though everyone Bellicor possesses usually only lasts for a very, very tiny amount of time before they burn out because having Bellicor inside of you is very hard. Yeah, um, yeah. and, and then, uh, is he more insane than Morger? Um, that's, that's kind of like, comparing like, apples <laughs> to oranges. Yeah. Um, I will note that Moonclaw seems to have a better understanding of what's going on around him. Um, and he seems to have an actual plan <laughs> and is like doing things very structurally. It's um, a bit like saying, is the Joker more insane than some other mad individual? Um, they're just mad in a very different way, but the Joker has plans and is utterly mental, but definitely has plans. Yeah, I, um, yeah. They're, I would say, they're different. Yeah, th yeah, th that would be... I would say that Moon... It, the best way I can answer it is that Moonclaw seems to have a better perception of reality than Morger does, um, but Morger is m messier, um, is the best way I could say it. <laughs> but anyway uh so that's oh, I oh, oh let's change it let's go back to our actual description of it morgor is insane moonclaw is is filled with mental mutations mm. um one's insane because of their mutations the other one's the insanity caused by the mutate they're two very different types of insanity um one caused by corruption the other one caused by the effects of corruption yeah so uh, I think we're good on Moonclaw Even? for now. I will say, though, uh, for Moonclaw, if you uh, 
there is a lot of suggestion. Cubicle 7 might be using him in the near future. He's been appearing in more and more of their books uh, associated with the Red Crown post um, The Enemy Within, um, which is really exciting. Hopefully we get to see them do something with him uh, because apparently the Red Crown, who have some really fun things involving uh, Beastmen, have become aware of Moonclaw and they think he's really cool, which is probably going to be really bad. <laughs> um, Alrighty, Skaven. Uh, oh, I'm gonna do one quick thing on Quay in, and then we can do Skaven. Uh, no, so I'm gonna to touch your, on the just because it's so short thing. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people ask about Quay in the Moon Empress. Um, she she does have a similar circumstance to Moonclaw in that they both seem to be lunar entities, though they're from two different moons. Quay in originates from Manslib, um, the real moon uh, or the original moon, and then Moonclaw came from Morslib, the Chaos Moon. Um, what's interesting is that Quayen is said to be the last of her kind, um, the last of her species. There seems to be a very strong suggestion that when Chaos first came into the world and the big shockwave went off, that probably obliterated um, whatever civilization lived on Manslib uh, because they were not protected against that shockwave and they were also isolated on a much smaller sphere out in space and they all... way i could see it is that maybe uh which could actually fact but morslib started to affect them maybe the creatures that live on morslib like moonclaw or just demons uh started to attack uh the regular moon robo sotek uh-oh huh. uh, uh, is it both of us is going down because he's roboing at my side although he's just cleared up now it looks like you're clear go am i clear Am I yep, clear? Like you're clear for me? Good? For okay. me, at least you're clear. Yeah. Yeah. Chat's got a little bit of a delay. So I'll damn, I'll... damn, damn more sleep. Okay. I'm good now. Apparently. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Go. Um, so huh, weird. Um, but, uh, it could be that either. So the, the two real situations are either that when chaos initially showed up, the moon got obliterated or, or, and I think could be a really, really fun idea is that Morslib and the entities upon it started attacking Manslib. And the civilization that was there was suddenly under assault fr from something they probably thought was not possible and were defending themselves against endless hordes of demons and whatever the hell Moonclaw is, which could be a really, really fun little storyline. I um, think there's definitely a lot in that because it also um, gives a reason for interaction and enmity. Um, on the ground in that we have ourselves an entity that comes from Morslib and an entity that comes from Manslib and we can build hatreds between them and use them as uh, interesting story fodder and not to use that seems to be just a waste of time and um, if you've got all this cool shit you're as well to use as much of this cool shit to make cool stories with that you possibly can I and mean, how could you not want to tie together these two moon-like entities sitting around there's um one thing that's also worth noting our good old um, Manslib side of things they are definitely shapeshifters so rather than taking Taking the lunatic aspect of moon stuff that we have in the real world, they're taking the shape-shifting aspect of it, and that is passed down to her kids in turn. Um, and I think that that is definitely worth um, looking at as an overall potential source for shape-shifting inside the Warhammer world as a whole, and building some interesting stories there too. Because if we want to look at this as a bigger story, what was on Manslieb when? the cataclysm occurred. We can see some things for certain, and it's something that we often forget when we're thinking of Warhammer as a whole, because we think of Warhammer, quite literally in the title, fantasy. 
It's it's a post-apocalyptic setting where several thousand years earlier it was high sci-fi, really high sci-fi. Um, and the idea that there was nothing on the moon is farcical, ridiculous, silly. Mm -hmm. Um, it is an entire system, and, and I do mean the entire solar system, that was populated by the Old Ones and the Old Ones plan, and it blew up on the Warhammer world and went wrong. That means that several of the other planets are also probably populated with stuff, be that Vedra or whatever other planet you happen to want to pop out to. Those that are physical and capable of sustaining life probably do Manslieb, we know had some form of life because we have a character that came from there so it almost certainly had a whole host of life there as well so what have we got left of that one enormously powerful individual and i think there's some great stories that can be told from that and more Morslieb built but jumping into the middle of this should be a part of that tale because we have an invader moving into the great plan and it makes sense to try and ensure that they are antagonistically placed. And if you've got that as a tool, as a storyteller, it seems almost a shame not to at least use it a bit. And I really like the idea suggested there where we have ourselves swarms of demons moving out and ripping apart the old one's plans that were sitting up on man's leap and a single survivor, perhaps out in a pod, a little bit like C-3PO and R2-D2, and landing their way down um, on the Warhammer world, and that's lovely. Uh, you joke, AV Pickstream, but I can guarantee you there has been a there have been goblins that have attempted to launch other goblins at the moon via catapult. There is no way that has not happened. <laughs> we are going to be moving on to the Skaven very soon, and they have indeed attempted this and possibly succeeded. Yes, that is also very true. And uh, probably, Hammond... <laughs> probably succeeded. Yeah, where where was Menslib <laughs> when the Westfold fell? <laughs> Why should we help them? Yeah, okay. Um, so Skaven. Um, Skaven. Skaven. So yeah. we've talked about a little bit how Morslib is intrinsically tied to the Skaven just through their creation. Um, it yeah. is very, very heavily suggested. So I don't know if uh, Sotek uh, is frozen for everyone else, but he has for me. Oh, you're back again. What is going on? Behavior internet. Uh, anyway. Um, you're back again, so just go. Yeah. Uh, so when um, the Morslib seems to have played a fundamental relationship in the creation of the Skaven, in that it showered a bunch of warpstone, a ton, like we're talking a, a very notable amount, not just one big hunk, but like tons and tons and tons and tons of shards rained down on uh, what we now know as the zombie marshes uh, in Talea or more accurately, the marshes outside of Skaven Blight, and this seems to have led to uh, a bunch of rats mutating into what we know as the Skaven. Now, um, there is, of course, the only thing we know, f I, I was about to say for sure, but that would not be accurate. The only real myth we have about the creation of the Skaven is the Doom of Kazvar, um, which Good suggests, which uh, talks about that there is an entity who appears uh, in uh, the city of Kazvar, which was it was a real place it was like one of these amazingly super powered city of men um it's very strongly associated with bermidia um there are some notes i want to say back in the tome of salvation that's yeah it was i wrote this bit yeah yeah that suggests <laughs> that mermidia was the patron of kasvar yeah. and that she was originally but and we do know that she was not originally the goddess of uh strategy and war in a sense she was a, a pacifist god 
She was yep. a goddess of civilization. And these, and the story kind of, uh, and I, I like how I'm talking this, even though Andy's the one that wrote it, but I'll let him correct. <laughs> <laughs> correct it's, it's much more fun. <laughs> so did chunks of Morsleep hit some Tillian guy's eye like a big pizza pie? That's a Morsleep. Yes. Uh, also, <laughs> Biofit, Bio thank you for thank you for the the, the bits to help defend well, that. Hey. Uh, Morslip, Morslip is see. This is why Morslip is dangerous. It knows I'm talking about it, so it's starting to fuck with my internet. <laughs> try and, try and stop things. But uh, anyway, so um, Kazgar, kill cut internet, kill cut. <laughs> the the basic idea, and Andy can add to this uh, because he's the one that wrote it, uh, as he wishes, of course. But the basic idea <laughs> is that basically they were a very very powerful civilization. It seems likely that the gods that they worshipped were directly involved in how advanced they were and gave them a lot of knowledge and power and all of these things. And they got content. Uh, they got borderline lazy. And Kasvar, which some versions of the story say Kasvar was a man who named the city after himself or that it was just the name of the city itself. Uh, both could be true, of course. And that they got arrogant. And it basically turns into the Tower of Babel. Um, where they decide to build a tower that seems to originally have had the idea of, oh, we're going to build a tower to, uh, tower to honor the gods, and then it turned more into, no, we're going to build a tower so we can go to where the gods are to show them how awesome we are. And this tower took them centuries uh, to build, and it eventually got to the point where they couldn't finish it. And then a mysterious stranger showed up, and mm -hmm. they were looking at this tower going... Mm, this is really upsetting. We really want to capstone this thing. And we really want to finish it, but it's kind of beyond our skill at this point. So they could have just called it quits and realized their hubris, but instead a mysterious stranger comes in and says, Hey, I'll finish that tower for you in a single night. And all I ask in return, you don't have to pay me. You don't have to give me anything. Just let me add a offering to my own God on the top. That's all I ask. And they said, Oh, sure. Great. Easy deal. Easy deal. Like the damn fools they were. And uh, sure enough, the tower is finished in a single night and it's capstoned with a wicked bell that begins to toll. And it tolls 13 times over the course of, I think, 13 days. Um, and uh, each time it tolls, the situation gets worse and worse. Clouds come in. It begins to rain. Everything begins to flood and turn into a like a slurry and a marsh. The dwarves that lived beneath Kasvar uh, within the mountain, who used to be very amicable with them, start to become much more cagey and insular, and they all start arguing with each other. Infighting starts. The dwarves tell them, fuck you guys, you're on your own. They seal the hold. The fields are ruined. They start running out of food. Rats start coming in. The rats start getting bigger. They start eating the children. They start eating the people. And it just gets worse and worse and worse until on the 13th day, the humans get desperate enough that they break into the dwarf hold because they want food and help. And down in the darkness, uh, they find the dwarves are all dead and have been devoured. And as they see that, they see they're surrounded by red beady eyes in the darkness. And it's the Skaven, uh, the actual men rats that swarm them and eat them all alive. And that is the fall of Kasvar. Um, and it's super spooky and terrifying.
yeah, so um, I love this tale. Um, it's been retold a couple of times. I first encountered it all the way back in terms of the first iterations of it when the Skaven were very first being created for the Skaven army list in their newer form. Um, and a White Dwarf article had a nice bit about it. And then it got retold again for the role-playing game in a slightly different way. Um, and when we were doing the Tome of Salvation, what we were attempting to do was try and marry that with all of the other tales that were kicking around in the world, particularly given um, that we had ourselves a goddess, Myrmidia, that required a great deal more connection to the people that were in the area than had been previously written um, even though she was supposedly the goddess of that particular area so we had to cover that part but we also had an awful lot of elven um, myth that had been interlaced into the earlier people of the Tillians. So eventually, to cut a long story short, the behind-the-scenes version of what led up to that was that we're dealing with the Tylos tribe of people. So that's another tribe, like say the Umberigans, or alternatively the Bretoni, or any of the other tribes of humans. And in this case, it's the Tylos people who were eventually going to found Tilly as we know it today. And this is one city in the north of these people. And they're most of their cities are built on elven ruins and the elven ruins are interlaced full of representations of the elven gods many of these gods became core to the Tilian people whether it's more with morai hag whether Kane uh, and strangely enough Kane, um, and they reiterated Myrmidia is a representation of one of them and Myrmidia became central to them and um, it said according to how you want to spin it at this point, that um, either A, the people of Tylos thought that they were elevated by gaining access to all this information. They knew more that indeed as a people, they were miles ahead of what was happening up in the empire where they were basically at this point, tribal people. Mm. Down here, it is a strong now, they were civilized civilization. They're speaking um, what we now call classical as a language. They're way ahead. Um, and they reached the point of apathy and boredom, so to speak, far earlier than others. And they also reached the point of hubris and in their pride attempted to reach the very gods that they themselves had handed to them by the elves um, and their versions of those gods and that went very, very wrong. Yeah, and what's interesting is that um, this entity that arrived, um, there's a lot of arguments about who it is. Um, a lot of people in the fan community like to say it was Zinchen Nurgle. I don't go with either of those theories. Um, I like to just, I personally believe it's just the Horned Rat himself um, appearing in guise, especially because he plays the role that the Horned Rat does. He is Ruination. He is the Inheritor. Mm -hmm. And I can see my internet is being all wonky. Um, you're doing fine on my side. Well, if I get wonky, you know, someone yeah, just... Like, if you get wonky and I'm still here, I'll just warble on about something. That's the, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but uh, so the Great Horned Rat, uh, he is uh, a god of ruination. He's a god that inherits everything else that falls apart. And he is there to ruin it so that he then lords above it. Um, and it's it's a great story I want to dive more into, but that's better saved for like a Mermidia oh. episode. I have, um, yeah, and I think there is a really good story, and I'm only going to say one little thing that I think will go for a Mermidia episode, and that's one question that actually popped up here. Um, yes, absolutely. That was the original um, design, as Graham Davis put it in for the first edition Warhammer Fantasy roleplay book. Um, Athena very much became Mermidia. Mermidia, however, developed, and the very name Mermidia, Mermidia, is based on the classical meaning beloved of more which is Morslib. Mm. And that ties through to the destruction and creation 
of the Skaven. And there was a reason that that was tied together. Um, and Mermidia as an idea and the name and where it comes from and who she is and what goddess she actually represents was all wrapped up into this creation of the Skaven. And ultimately, Morsleib, the beloved of Mor, Mermidia. It's not even her real name per se. It's the name that they use for her because she's Mor's beloved daughter. Um, and indeed, that brings about the end of Kazvar. Hey, Andy Morshammer. <laughs> Andy Law personally told me that there used to be zombies, vampire lords, and undead cities near Kasvar before the fall. Is that true? Um, sort of. Um, and by that, I mean the uh, empire from Nehekara expanded all the way up here um, and beyond mm. the borders and into parts of the empire. So were there zombies? Not per se. Were there vampire lords? Well... Yeah, just look at Nehekara and its entire story and the answer will be there. Were there undead cities, though? Now we're getting closer to something that could potentially pop up. And this is something that pops up in a few novels and it pops up in one of the expansions for second edition as well with Lure of the Lich Lord, Lich Lord, whatever, um, where there is entire undead pyramids well beyond the expected borders that we see today. And is there one up there? You know, very likely there was an expansion in that area. It just hasn't been dealt with yet. And that was unexpectedly a cogent question. That wasn't. Yeah, before. I know from him. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little like, bit surprised. I <laughs> I'm taken back. <laughs> um, so anyway, we need to get to yeah, um, Morsleib yeah. and our Skaven. Now, Morsleib, uh, just to cut all of this story down into its nubbins here, Morsleib becomes central to how Skaven work with their religion. When Morsleib is full, that is not just a great event in terms of the mythological aspects of it or the magical aspects of it. It is for them a spiritual event. It's tied directly through to the Horned Rat in many respects. Many Skaven believe that Morsleib is effectively just the Horned Rat through showering them with presents. Indeed, when we were um, building up the first iterations for the Horned Rat book, it was quite important that all of the images of Morsleib had a Horned Rat head put on it. Because in many respects, they believe that's the horned rat. And when the Skaven look up and they see uh, a big, huge moon in the sky, they don't see a grinning skull. They see the horned rat himself with curling horns wrapped around it. It is quite literally the horned rat up there, their god, doing his thing. So, yes, central to the very religion of the Skaven and thus super important to them. <laughs> Yeah, what's really interesting about Morslib, um, the Skaven probably have one of the most hilarious relationships with it because the Skaven have genuine philosophical debates within their, or should I say scientific debates, within their communities, how the different clans think what Morslib actually is. And yes, please uh, hit that like button. Really appreciate it. It helps get more eyes on the these uh, streams and we really appreciate that. Thanks, Richard. You rock. Thanks for pointing that out. You rock. Listen to Richard. He's so clever. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah. His name's Richard Noling. He knows. Like it, he it's knows. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, what's interesting is that there are notes about how the different Skaven clans argue what Morselib is made out of. Like they understand that it's very important to them, but they have surprising arguments about what it could be. And this is, of course, where like the really hilarious meme comes from, where there are Skaven that genuinely believe it's green cheese. Um, like they're they're like it's a joke, but there it's implied that there are Skaven clans that seem to genuinely hold that opinion. 
Yeah, this kind of um, came from Empire and Flames. Um, this is a book that, uh, for Warm Fantasy Roleplay, the first edition, where the Emperor makes um, comment about the green cheese and the moon men and the skaven that are living on the moon. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there is a reason for it in that particular adventure because he's going proper crazy. Um, but loosely, yeah, um, we know that the moon is mostly warp stone and the next question is have any skaven got up there and the answer is according to the background in a few places probably yes there's more than enough suggestion that some have somehow managed to skitter leap their way up there using magic and have somehow managed wearing some sort of crazy suit to survive up there to mine the fucking stuff and then get back again does it almost certainly end with mighty explosions sure but that's half the fun isn't it <laughs> skaven are proper mental um so yeah i do love that as an idea i think it's proper crazy but it's well within the standard remit of a crazed gray seer to think that they in their audacity could somehow get hold of this almost infinite resource of warpstone which is at heart the currency of the skaven it's basically like a giant gold block in the, oh, in yeah. the sky waiting to be mined. Yeah, I, I want to say there's a note that like it was a few, it was like a good, it was a while ago now, but it was like like five or six centuries ago. I think Clan Scryer finally won like the debate on instructions on clear sent warpstone media hurtling into like button, mutated it into great subscribe button, started a religion around it. Good. The traditional well, done on the side. I I absolutely approve of this particular mutation of one thing moving to the next. So do yes, press like, hit subscribe, do the thing. <laughs> um, what what's interesting is that uh, Clan Scryer was the ones that eventually really figured out and like proved that the moon was made of warpstone. They they finally through some version of the Skaven scientific method, which I'm sure is much more deadly than our version of the scientific method, uh, <laughs> came to that conclusion. Felt confident about it. And ever since then, there has been an obsession among the Skaven with trying to find a way to harvest the moon. Because mm -hmm. if they could get their greedy little paws on that much warpstone, surely at long last they would dominate all things. Even though knowing the Skaven, they would probably just kill themselves um, <laughs> if they were given that much power. Well, that would be one hell of a bang. <laughs> yeah. And uh, of course, we do see this uh, finally realized in the end times where they do finally destroy the moon or harvest it by destroying it. Um, now there are several different methods. <laughs> Made a bit of a mistake with that, though. <laughs> yes, they did. Um, there are some. Uh, there are several different methods the Skaven pr prior to the end times have attempted to deal with the moon. Um, there have been attempts using rituals to pull the moon in closer. There have been attempts to shoot something at the moon that would blow off a piece of it, or maybe blow up the whole thing. And like Annie said, there have even been attempts to go to the moon, either Clan Scryer or different clans building literally rocket ships or using magic to like teleport somebody up there. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's very strongly implied that some of these were at least successful in some way, shape or fashion uh, of that. They made a device that did hit and break off a piece of the moon, or they did manage to teleport someone up there to mine bit of it and come back, or they did manage to pull it a little closer one time. Uh, and they have this real back and forth re relationship. And as the Skaven have grown more advanced, they ended up kind of becoming the opponents of the Lizardmen in the sense yep. that the Skaven were constantly trying to bring the moon in and the Lizardmen were trying to push the moon away. And we see this finally culminate in the end times where there's literally a big magic duel between the entirety, all 169 of the Grey Seers and a bunch of Vermin Lords versus the Slon. 
where the Gracers and all of them are trying to pull the moon to the planet and the Slon are trying to push it away. And it's this huge fight that ends with uh, the Slon winning, but they all get comatose afterwards because it was such an effort. Um, and a bunch of shenanigans happen. And that actually screws over the Gracier clan because they also overexerted themselves trying to pull off this ritual. And then uh, in the end times, we see Ickit Claw makes a tractor beam, uh, which is a uh, is a device that's in Total War. Um, I think actually, I think he was working on that before the end times. Yeah, but he was. He, he makes a functioning tractor beam to try and pull in the moon, uh, which seems to work, but not as well as he would like. And then there is um, a different Skaven who ends up basically making a doom rocket on cocaine uh, that is what finally explodes the moon. Um, which there is one of my favorite notes is there's actually a hilarious note about when the moon explodes, where there's a moment where I want to say it's Lord Mazdamundi's point of view, but there's a moment where one of the Slon makes a comment along the lines of like the dark gods were super like, yeah, yeah. Like the Skaven are finally like, uh, they're, they're doing our bidding. They're going to help us win the war. And then the Slon says something along the lines of that truly the chaos gods are idiots and mad because they didn't realize that the Skaven doing this, unless the song get involved, it wouldn't be chaos wins and takes over the world. It's just the world dies. <laughs> like The world just which, obliterates, which I think to a degree, the ruinous powers are after anyway, they, they won. Yeah. But, but it's, it's, wanted. it's such a funny, there's, it's such a funny note of being something along the lines of like the dark gods are like trying to like the Skaven, but the Slon feel very strongly that the chaos gods underestimate the Skaven and don't understand that the Skaven are as dangerous to them as they are to everybody else. Uh, which is just funny Not to me, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so the Skaven have always been the race that it's like where the beastmen tend to see Morslib as more of like a deific figure, something to worship um, the, the goblins or the greenskins see as something more to be feared and respected in a sense. The Skaven are the ones who are batshit crazy enough to see it as a resource. Despite I'd how that, dangerous I'd say they're all of the above to a degree. Yeah, um, yeah, because sure. um, the Skaven that are on the lower side, on the lower echelons, they have literally no idea about warp stone gigantic things up in the sky um that's really very much the engineers and the graciers your average skaven it's nothing more than a representation of the horned rat and as you move up through the echelons of knowledge you realize that that representation is nothing more than a representation of the power of the horned rat what is their core substance warp stone pure magic that is the source of it and there's a reason that the uh entire religion is focused around that it's because it is the way to ruin the entire world and bring it to the heels of the skaven um and it's just different layers of society in skaven society so to speak will have different views as to exactly what it represents where those who are at the very top will be seeing it as it pretty much is a gigantic bit of warp stone the thing i find most interesting from the end times is the fact that the very nature of the moon itself should have almost Broke anything you attempted to put up there because it's pure warp stone. It warps and changes everything. It's not just going to mutate people. It's going to mutate anything mm -hmm. that's close to it. You put a bomb beside that thing. That bomb's going to be a whale or a petunia or something else. <laughs> okay, next week, who knows? It's going to be twisting and warping into a variety of things. So it also speaks to how the Skaven must have understood this come the end times, and they whatever they built was purposed to be strongly anti-magical, almost certainly built out of obsidian, lead, and various other substances to try and ensure that they, well, 
they could actually bring about the end that they were looking for. Has the Lord Master of Sotek just paused over there? Have I paused as well? If the chat could tell me if I'm, I can still be heard. At the moment, he looks like he's looking at the screen and not doing that much else. Is that the case for everyone else? I'm waiting for the comments to catch up with the live stream. Can I be seen? Can I be heard? Oh, Andy is good. Excellent. I'm not frozen. It's coming in. Woohoo! Um, the stream is mine. I've taken over his channel. Yes, yes. It is my time to rule. That being the case, uh, given that we have no Sotep for the moment, I do have access to Sotep. I'm, I'm, I'm all, look at me. I'm huge. Ooh, I've turned into Morsleep. So I'm going to take this exciting moment to dive into Sotek's channel, see if he returns. Oh, here he is. He's back. Stringyards is not liking my internet today. <laughs> no, it really isn't, is it? Um, so do you want to dive into the questions so we can start taking all the questions? Since that seems yeah, to be sure. Really we nice, that. A really nice cutoff point there. Perfect. Um, there was me thinking I could take over your entire channel and do whatever <laughs> I wanted. I'm so disappointed. It, yeah, it, you know what? If you want to, you can have fun with it. <laughs> it, it. It totally isn't a horribly stressful thing sometimes. Uh, all right. So, wow, we have a ton of questions about Morslib. Um, okay, I'm sure we can get through these pretty easily because most of them, I imagine, are mo very much it's warp stone. Yes, people worship it. The end. Uh, yeah. All right. So, first question uh, mm -hmm. from Scythe Petals: The Nehekarans worship Neru, a moon goddess linked to Manslib. Do they have a deity tied to Morslib? Yes, 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 they absolutely do. So um, up there, there is uh, obviously Morslib, and they the Nehekarans view Morslib as the green moon. I imagine they've got some funky Nehekaran version of how they um, uh, answer that. And particularly, though, I can't remember which book it was in. It doesn't really matter. One of the concubines of Sekhmet, um, her name is... Sakmet. No, it's, it's the concubine of Petra. I'm getting my head mm -hmm. up. It's the real god. So her name's Sakmet. Um, and she's a concubine to Petra. And she is seen as a, a crazy green witch. She is a lunatic using, again, that sensation of madness going hand in hand with the green moon that sits in the sky. Because when it goes full, it makes people go mad down on the ground. Um, so this scheming concubine of Petra, who's very much trying to get in between Petra and the real wife, um, is their goddess for this and is perceived as chasing the main moon around the world and trying to kick it out so that it can become ascendant in the sky and then when it becomes ascendant it will then be able to go back over to the sun and go you are mine yes finally um uh, as uh as go, it's pretty much classic for how people who are on the ground are trying to make sense of the heavens um particularly given you've got yourself this bizarre meandering moon that's changing in size and dominance and occasionally dominating the other moon but never really being able to do anything to Mansleep, meaning that it's always on the outside which is i imagine where sackmit gets her particular um green witch vengeful character from i'm I can't remember which book that was in. It's really annoying. I'm, it's definitely in there, though. It's in my head. Uh, I know. I know it's mentioned in. Uh, I want to say the eighth edition Tomb Kings Army book. I don't. Maybe I don't, it doesn't go that well in depth. That might be one of the older books. Yeah, but, uh, be. yeah. That's really annoying. That I can't remember, but I do know that one. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Can you discuss the potential implications slash conflicts of Moonclaw, who fell from Manslib and the Moon Empress? Yeah, we talked about that. They would. Definitely yeah, be very opposed that. forces. I th I think if Total War ever decided to put Moonclaw in the game, making him the Beastman character in Cathay would be a lot of fun. Um, like, yeah, if he's Empire. technically he's technically he's in the Empire, but I think he would do great as a Cathayan villain. 
Yeah, I, I would move um, Moonclaw from the Empire over the mountains. I'd build a nice little short story about that journey and the and the faction that he builds up with him and then unleash that upon Cathay because that would make a great story. Yep. Uh, let's see. Are all the good, quote-unquote good, moon entities <laughs> tied to Manslib like Neru and Lilaith? Uh, and if so, what does that mean for Morslib? I think I think it's pretty much explained by the very question. Yeah, yeah. the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most most cultures, if they bother with a moon god, um, they usually are like good god, bad god. <laughs> pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah, pretty much. And you, there is a lot of um, connection to a variety of good things or gods or goddesses um, to Mansleep. Um, and they also interestingly skip across the the genders um in that they both have male aspects and feminine aspects where um Morslieb is generally always almost genderless mm. um in that it's always something that is viewed as the thing of that thing very few gods are directly associated with it which is strictly speaking really weird because you'd think loads of them would be anything bad and nasty you think would be tied to Morslib, which suggests that the underlying knowledge is that it stands outside the god's plan, so to speak. Yep. Uh, and I, I will note that um, in a lot of the cultures that tend to not necessarily view Morslib in a deific sense, it's usually because Manslib will get locked in with the sea god. Um, so like the moons are more seen as a aspect mm. of the, the ocean as opposed to being their own separate thing. Uh, Grandmaster Eldrin, uh, what are the other races slash cultures relationship with Morslib? What are their names for it? Are there characters other than Moonclaw who are tied very heavily to the moon? Okay, uh, so we if I can remember any. <laughs> yeah, so we have, okay, we've talked about pretty much all the other cultures and races. Um, generally speaking, most Skaven races. Skaven call it Morskrit. That yep, I remember. Um, Morskrit for the Skaven. Um, uh, let's see, Northmen. So you've got, we've already mentioned Gyronek. That's, um, the Northmen tribes. Then you go normal chaos people and the Norse, they generally refer to it as the chaos moon, as do the lizardmen, although they use their own words for that um, because it's brought yeah, chaos into, a but... closed, into a closed system. Um, it was a closed system with its perfect plan. The chaos moon comes in. Other than that, more script chaos. You obviously got Morslieb um for the empire and in fact most of the old world use beloved of more there's the ah, i can't remember the dwarf name for it they do have a name for it god dang it yeah i was trying to look it up earlier but like i i was i remember that's I was really struggling annoying. to find the passage i i wrote an article for this um for the tome of salvation so i wrote the bit about how that might be where it is do. that, that um, might actually be where it is so it wouldn't surprise me if it's sitting inside the cosmology sections inside um, the Wikipedia online somewhere. So if anyone's um, out there and wanting to go look it up, you might find it in there because I definitely wrote about it. Yeah, because there, I, I yeah, I think it's the Tome of Salvation has a segment that talks about like how the elves, what they call yep. it and feel about it, what the dwarves call and feel about it. Yep. Um, but yeah, most most races would have their own name for it. You know, Greenskins call it the Bad Moon if that's the moon they're talking about. Um, um, but probably. uh yeah probably but <laughs> it, yeah depends on the tribe yeah. um but uh, yeah um uh moving on uh oh we've had another pause i'm going to presume that i'm still going so i'm going to bring God. up the oh no you back yeah yeah this is annoying um yeah i want to say i want to say it's pretty much just moonclaw 
Um, I don't think anyone else. I didn't is, hear the question. You'll need to. Uh, is question. any uh, any other characters tied strongly to Morslib? It's pretty much just Moonclaw, really, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, yeah. No, the the Cathayans would mean, not call it Morslib. They would they would call it something else. But we don't we don't know yeah. what the word is that the Cathayans use for the moon, um, like the actual moon. Like Quayen is not the moon. She's just from the moon. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. Cool. What's next? Um. Let's see. Uh, Grandmaster Eldrin, uh, what could be the potential ramifications for destroying the moon, excluding what happened in the end times? Um, it, it, it would be a probably borderline apocalyptic event. Um, it, unless... <laughs> Massively apocalyptic. Yeah. Unless You're talking it's... end of the world unless they somehow get it to go away. Yeah, and, unless you can make it leave the atmosphere, you're, you're talking about, like, asteroid warp zone asteroids that could easily obliterate the planet like it would mm -hmm, it would be mm -hmm. game over yeah it would like the, the end times had a lot of bad stuff but like the parts dealing with the moon and like what would happen was pretty accurate <laughs> um let's see scythe pedals how frequently do warp zone meteors drop from more slip um <laughs> at the speed of plot <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, sometimes it's like once a century sometimes it's like a whole bunch of times in a decade sometimes it's once every thousand years it just it depends yeah so there there is a, a general answer and that's that the lizardmen are fucking with that moon trying to bounce it away like it's some sort of breakout game um on the other side the scavener making various attempts to pull it in then you have other forces in the world who are doing whatever the fuck they're doing who knows every time that moon is screwed with one fashion or another it draws stuff some of that stuff will come directly down to the world some of it will move into orbit meaning that occasionally it might take as much as 10 15 20 or even a century or so before that orbiting piece eventually hits the atmosphere and comes scudding down towards the earth unlike standard meteorites a warp stone is surrounded and emitting magic it's much less likely to be burned up by the heat when it comes in having said that though heat is often the most common way that the empire for example tries to remove move infestations of dar and taint and warpstone in general so it will get destroyed to a degree and then green streaks through the sky down come the tears of more there is no consistent answer to that there is no it happens so many years or any equivalent because it's as inconsistent as the interactions with the moon and the potential of the moon spitting itself as well which may not involve any interaction from any outside force so that's that has lore master decided to freeze up while i'm talking again um, that being the case, I can't move on. Is the bad moon just Morsleep? Oh, hiya, you're back. Yes. Um, or is it something different in green skin eyes? I think we covered that quite extensively earlier during the stream. And yep. hey, Ivan. Thank uh, you very much. You rock. We love you. Yeah, thank you, you so much. And uh, I apologize that my internet is being a bitch today, but it just happens. Uh, it happens sometimes. Uh, let's see. Jack of Ripper. What would, what would happen to a person if they were born on the one night morsel who can be seen in its full glory in the middle of the sky? What would happen to them? What would the community do to them? Okay, that's actually a more interesting question that I we actually didn't... Oh, man, we that's like a whole Which subject. Going into, it really is, isn't it? I haven't touched on all of a sudden. Um, so that's actually worth diving into for a minute. In that, um, so if Morslip can have a very dramatic effect on a lot of different things. People born when Morslip is full, usually it's not good. Yeah, um, there's a star sign for it, the Witchling Star. Um, and there's a reason it's called that, because those born under full Morsleep are potentially in trouble. They're very likely to be witches later in life. Um, doesn't mean they will be, but they're very likely to be so. What will it mean to the local community? Uh, trust me, if that baby's born clean, everyone's going to 
pretty much defend their own child. There is absolutely no doubt in the vast majority of communities, it would be nothing. There would be no further. It would just be the child born while everyone's doing their Hexenstag or Geheimesnacht um, celebrations behind closed doors in the dark. Um, it's not something that I think on a community basis for the majority of species across the Warhammer world would be done, uh, would be granted any significant importance. However, it's exactly the sort of thing that saying Skaven society would bring about, say, the birth of a white-furred child. You'd almost expect a white-furred rat to be born on Geheimisnacht when good old Morsleib is fooling up in the sky. East yeah, species horn nubs <laughs> yeah, totally. little horn nubs because um we've got ourselves a grace here in the making right there um so each society will have its own things but generally when people ask that question they're loosely saying what happens in the empire because it's the society that most people start from and the answer is in most cases nothing it's yeah. just another night but it's a night of great concern but if a child is born then so be it some might pretend it wasn't born that night or it was born the day before because hey everyone's behind their closed doors who's to say yeah and there is a non-insignificant chance that the child can be born a mutant um which that does not usually end well normally those will end up being gave spawn which are children that are handed over to the beastmen because uh, they're left out in the forest because nobody wants to kill a baby because that you know they're still human and killing a baby even if it's mutated is like really awful <laughs> yeah totally and um i think it's also worth saying that uh as ridiculous as this is going to sound um there is an empirical fact here that we can deal with if you're born underneath that baleful green light in the sky there's a high chance of mutation that means that there are going to be people who will notice this and scientifically go this is a problem we need to deal with which means those with money and those in influence are going to respond to this which means that you're going to probably almost certainly find that there's going to be certain rules put in place for some families who become aware of this to never walk outside in Morslib's light if you're pregnant ever there will almost hmm. certainly be birthing chambers in some places that have sheets of obsidian laced into their roofings. It have lead attached into all of their building materials at the top to try and ensure that that green light cannot influence the children, particularly for important imperial families, for example. They'll be doing whatever they can to try and protect their legacy, their children, and ensure that mutation doesn't happen. So the whole point of that little aside is that if you're in a world where all of these things can be discovered... If you're role-playing in this world, try and think about what that means. When your characters discover it, what would they do? And more importantly, if you're a GM, what have others done already? Because people aren't stupid. Once they notice that a thing happens, they will do things to mitigate it. And indeed, in many respects, the dwarves have done the cleverest thing by drilling themselves deep underground. It would, for example, suggest some societies would always have their birthings underground where hopefully the light of Mor Mans Morsley, pardon me, would not affect the potential birth to come. So there's all sorts of fun things you could do for cultural impact for the very different way that the real world manifests in comparison to the Warhammer world. So if you are out there GMing your own games or playing in your own games, think it through and do stuff that's really cool and fun for your game. Yeah, I would even go so far as to say you'd potentially see circumstances like poor communities or wealthy communities, if they could find them, calling upon like priestesses of Shalia or Raya to come and either do a right to try and make the baby come early or make the baby come later so that it's not born on the night. Or, uh, but yeah, like there's actually, I've, I know there are some books that have gone specifically into detail of like pregnant mothers. There's a whole, they just don't go into Morselid's light at all. That's considered like you're, 
you're risking like unless the house is burning down and you will die unless you go out into that light you do not go out into the light if you're you pregnant. Can, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's a little bit like in modern times, um, the strong stress not to smoke, not to drink when you're pregnant. Um, yeah. And you're going to find that there will be similar restrictions. Be aware, though, that society is often mean and horrible. And some people will try to use those to restrict and control people as well. So, mm. you know, if you're looking for a dark and grim world and not just a world that's reflective of the environment in which it's in, try to think about those things too. But only if you want to, because that can go to some pretty horrible places if you're taking it to its fruition yeah yeah make sure to check in with your yeah. players <laughs> yeah check in with your players make sure you're all cool with that because yeah. that's pretty horrific yep uh let's see scythe petals how much warpstone harvested straight from Morselib would i have to pay to get bretonia on the list for an episode in the near future i'll tell you what if you manage i've never heard of bretonia so i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> Tell you what, tell you what, if you find a way to harvest Warslib, uh, don't contact us ever because you are clearly about to go through some horrible stuff. We don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> um, uh, actually, I think this is kind of an interesting question um, for you, Andy. Uh, oh. Are there any underground human communities that you can think of off the top of your head? And I can think of one, um, though they're not underground anymore, which is that in the Sigmar trilogy, it talks about that the, was the Aceborns? had they had they had an underground community um but yeah and they they came out um there uh it's interesting i didn't actually tie that through to the other legend yeah, i've just had a thought but that by the by um <laughs> yes is the answer but no is also the answer and by that i mean it's not something because games workshop have been very focused on trying to ensure that each of their individual species factions cultures have got their own unique identity when something becomes a core part of an identity to one of those species they tend to stop all other species from doing it so for example the dwarfs are their under mountain underground people um they have a variety of things that potentially are related to it even if we look at things like the gnomes but generally speaking if you move to another species that's the good guy species they avoid that and they will look for different key traits the same sort of goes with bad guys but again the bad guys are generally pitched against the species so for example orcs pitched against dwarves so they're underground oh, no let's just make it the goblins um let's now have a look at the skaven they're underground because they're also pitched against and you tend to find that it's mm -hmm. often correlation to another species that defines them allows them to be the bad guy species that come squirreling up from underground so are there human societies that do this and not just yes hell yes all over the place there's going yeah. to be a variety of them those that are following dwarven traditions those who perhaps moved into mines that were once vacated by dwarves the world is huge are there entire civilizations that are based upon this not yet but if you look to the real world version and look at some of the craziness that they got down in turkey um there's some really cool stuff down that there i'm not going to pronounce the names i'll pronounce it wrong it's pronounced sort of like k mackley and similar but there's some massive underground cities down there that used to populate tens of thousands of people underground would warhammer uplift that and drop it down into the border princes somewhere or in that oh, area oh, was, for an ancient actually, civilization yes yeah, i know i know in the um uh the border prince book the badlanders a lot of badlander communities live underground um like they live in like chasms or crevasses where they've built into the hills or into the walls that way they can get away from the green skins that are along the surface and stuff 
and all of that. So yes, you're going to get loads of individual yeah. communities. They've yet to create an entire human civilization that's built upon it. But I think the likelihood of it, if they ever reach the point where they go, it's about time now that we start detailing other parts of the world rather than just the empire, that they will do that. That's a cool question. Uh, do the colonies of magic and Altdorf ever try their best to bend Morselib's light away from Altdorf when Geheimnisnacht comes? Um, I think that's a little bit like... Uh, uh, asking them to bend a tide um, in that perhaps in a very small local amount they could give it a go, but they'll probably fail. Um, yeah, I think they'd be more about using protective materials um, as opposed yeah. to, like, especially because using magic to deal with Morselib is kind of ask, it's like using fire to fight fire. It's, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you can make a, an entire city cold on a hot summer's day, but that doesn't stop the sun beating down on you. It's still up there. Um, and the moon is going to be constantly beating down. Now, I think that this is a really complicated question, actually. Um, it's so complicated, it's just become a mighty point of concern in my campaign, and my players don't realize how much of a concern it is. Because ultimately, <laughs> you're saying, what is magic? And and Warpstone is magic. Morslieb is magic. It's not evil. It's just magic. It's all wrapped mm. up into the whole thing. And Morslieb is too much magic coming down at once, so to speak. Um, and when Geheimisnacht comes, that too much magic causes effects and you have to protect yourself from it. But if you're a wizard, it's a night where you can do all manner of great, massive deeds because there's so much magic in the air. But because there's so much, it makes it more likely for things to go wrong. So I think the correct answer to this one would be would they try and stop it? They might consider it as a theoretical question, particularly in the Light College. Have they successfully done it yet? Possibly they have, perhaps with some prismatic Light College diffuse thing, maybe once or twice. But because there's so much magic kicking about, it's going to blow up. It's probably going to go wrong. Yeah. Um, and that suggests something that's happened in the last 200 years that's yet to be popped into the timeline, which is the Light College tries to hold off Geheimisnacht and one of their pyramids blows up, loads of wizards dies. Oops, let's not try that again, which is probably the real answer. They've tried, hmm. they've tried, and they've failed. Yeah, honestly, I wouldn't have put it past the Light College to try and create something that like absorbs magic, thinking that might deflect it, and then it absorbs too much and explodes. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just constantly coming down. It's just this constant irradiation. Yeah, yeah. That there, it's it's a really complicated question, and much more complicated than a simple question at the end of our stream can quickly drill into. <laughs> There's so much here we could discuss. Yeah, great question though. Yeah, but uh, a beautiful question. Love it. Let's Thanks. see. Um, oh man, I'm not even going to try and pronounce your name. Uh, yes, I will. Uh, Graf von Graugrissen. There we go. Close enough. Falsmark Graf. Uh, yeah. Uh, is Morslip responsible for all the Warpstone meteors and meteor showers, thus responsible for the fate of more time? Uh, I would say right. it is. I would say it is not responsible for all of them. Um, there is a lot of suggestion that when Chaos initially came in, Morslip was the biggest chunk of Warpstone, but there was like a ton, a massive amount that are just hanging out in the atmosphere or cycling around the planet, and every once in a while, one of them kind of curves and falls. Um, so is it all of them? Probably not. Um, there's probably much smaller chunks of warpstone out in the atmosphere or space. Um, but is it responsible for a lot of the really big, important ones? Yeah, generally. Oh, I'm the other way now, Dave. That, um, I'll also add a couple of, uh, let's say difficulties to this whole process. Um, during the conversation behind the Realms of Sorcery second edition book for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, there was a massive argument behind the scenes concerning Warpstone and its creation. 
Um, on one hand, you had the concept that Warpstone was the response of... It was nothing more than the meteorites that landed on the planet. They all came from Moore's Leap or the original ejection from the poles. So that means, for example, down in the southern pole, if all the warpstone found down there came from the southern pole. The same for the northern pole. And everything that comes showering down onto the Warhammer world was either original ejecta or it came from Moore's Leap. But there was a second one and a second argument, which was very much driven by the author, Marianne von Stauffer, um, where there was many examples of where Dar, when it became stagnant, when it drew together and was never resolved, so much magic suffused in that area would eventually solidify and create new pockets of warpstone. And a, a slight split was here created between Dar and True Dar in an attempt to try and justify that, justify what the Dark Elves did, and similar. So by the end of that book, there was the concept that Warpstone could also magically create itself, but it created a host of issues. Because, for example, Nagaroth is absolutely suffused with dark magics completely as is for example if we go down to sylvania that place becomes a bit of a hellhole and a mess with mm. how much dark magic there are and if that's the case it should also be suffused with warp stone because it would start gathering anywhere where this magic was not properly channeled away and an answer was not provided for why that wasn't the case because it isn't it expressly isn't you don't wander into sylvania and then suddenly find warp stone everywhere that's not the sort of corruption that it's currently cast under it's quite different when the good old undead lands so there is an issue here that needs to be resolved and i don't think anywhere has properly resolved it yet but the answer and i know this is a long answer for a very simple question is <laughs> the vast majority of it comes from Morslieb and the ejector from the poles but there are lots of ways that it could potentially be created and i have one last thing to say on that if that is the case then the Skaven are definitely running Warpstone farms. Yeah, that, that's actually what I was about which, to say, is that... Which is an issue. Yeah, I, I would say that I, I kind of struggle with the idea that you can create Warpstone nowadays, because if you could, surely vampires and Skaven and Dark Elves would be doing that all over the goddamn place, and that's never Indeed. been done that we know of. Yeah, and if it had been done, it would have been a plot point in so many stories. Um, and the amount of dark kicking around all of these locations, it would have turned it into a plot point. So I would generally suggest that no matter the story that's put in place there, that I wouldn't use it except for perhaps outside extreme events, like, for example, an incursion of chaos, when magic has gone properly wild, and then perhaps Warpstone does reform in a couple of places and perhaps it's not simply uh it forming out of the wild magic it could be almost reforming from a piece that was once there a long time ago and it's almost like the seed of it is growing like a crystal um mm. so there was one tiny seed left and that crystal grows and a piece of warp stone um starts to form in the most unlikely place like in the barn hills or equivalent so eh, it, there's a long complicated answer there yeah, hey cb friend uh... Yeah, so we ask, uh, could the answer to why there are not two more slips be that the Southern Gates one was shot further out into space uh, and eventually came back uh, to be thrown at the Ogres by Grand Cathay? Um, I will say that's an interesting theory. Uh, it's possible. I will say the, the Great Maw is a little undersized to be a second more slip. Um, it would probably have been a lot bigger if that was the case. Yeah, um, the, the answer to that is probably... Uh, yeah possibly in that it could have been a piece of ejector that came from the southern pole we don't actually know what happened at the southern pole we have 
we have myths for what happened at the mm. Northern yeah, Pole. No one's been down all... there that re recorded it and brought it back. <laughs> so, the South is tough. Um, so I'd say that if you're looking for the most likely option, it would be that it was a large piece of ejecta from one of the two poles that warped around the planet a few times and then skipped into the atmosphere, burned up for however many weeks, looked like a comet for most of that time until eventually it slammed down into the planet. People across the world were probably aware of this event. Um, and as we discussed in our previous stream concerning them all, it's mm. very likely that the outcome was controlled, suppressed um, by the, well, by what will become Grand Cathay. Um, but that is nothing more than making sense of a ra relatively weird event that may have been a planet killer. Yep. Uh, Sage Kinshu's next question says, we know the Empire call it Gehandesnacht. Do the dwarves or elves or Cathayans, et cetera, have their own names for it? Yes, 100%. Yes, they do. That, God, that is... Sorry, that's annoying me. I, I, I definitely have it, it here. It's in, um, it's in the uh, Tome of Tome Salvation. Salvation. Yeah. In the Tome of Salvation, I definitely wrote it into there. And it's really annoying because I spent ages making sure that I got the colors right. You know what? How about, how about you answer this next question from the chat? Um in depth while i try and look that up real quick because i've okay so um the barn hills um and what goes on there is a fascinating um situation because it's actually gone through more than one iteration it all spans back to the original enemy within um the death on the reich adventure from the first edition version of it um had a pretty prolonged story that was based around what turned the green hills the grunhugel into the barren hills an event that occurred around about a hundred years ago as more spat and meteorites of warpstone struck the green hills and turned that into what is now known as the barren hills and it fucks with everything everything living goes wrong uh the entirety of the area becomes almost a desert in the center of the empire as life itself struggles and what remains of the people there become an absolute mess but this gets changed and messed around with by multiple different sources over the course of time one of the biggest changes is that they often forgot that it was only a hundred years ago the number of people who've dropped in a little detail like, and for the last so many centuries in the Barren Hills, this occurred. Or so many hundred years ago, this struck the Barren Hills. And you're like, but it wasn't the Barren Hills then. That doesn't make sense within the existing lore. For example, that very clearly marks down when Moonclaw came down within the last 100 years, if you go by that story. And to make matters slightly more confusing, when the most recent edition of the adventure, Death on the Reich, was released, again, 100 years ago was marked as the date when that struck down. So we have all of that. Did you find what you're looking for there? Uh, I am trying, but I am... I know, exactly where it, I know exactly where it is if you want to now take over with some additional... Cool. I'll, yeah, I'll let you do that then, it's because it's like, I, I forgot I, how big this fucking book is. And my I God. know exactly where it is because, well, I... All right, uh, so we've got, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, we've already talked about the Skaven. Uh, Sword of Sin, could there be life on Morsev? We've covered that. Yes, absolutely, probably, most likely. Uh, probably demons or something similar to Moonclaw. Um, have any gods attempted to destroy Morslib? That is an interesting question. We've touched on a bit in a sense of that the Lizardmen have tried to destroy it. It's likely that some gods in a sense, have attempted to destroy it of that. So I, I would say yes, but the way gods interact with the world is often kind of complex. 
Um, like Andy talked about earlier, um, there's the idea that Moore himself may have been directly related to the creation of Warslib, which may have been from an attempt to destroy it that killed him and made him into the god of death. Um, so have in the sense of have gods attempt to destroy it, I would say almost certainly yes, but gods are also weird and complicated and it's sometimes difficult to understand what is something that they actually did themselves versus what is something that was like a natural phenomena that is then attributed to gods. Um, but uh, hopefully that uh, answers that. Um, Servant said, do you think the demigods or lesser gods like Grombrindel would be able to survive on Morslib? That's a complicated question. Um, I, I think creatures that are more magically focused, like... Grombrindel's a really weird case. Um, I, I don't know, know if I'd feel confident answering that particular because Grombrindel is implied to be more physical than a lot of people think he is um, as opposed to like a creature like the Green Knight, right? Uh, or a god. Um, I would say like gods, yeah, they'd be able to live there fine. It's magic. They don't need air. They're, they're etheric entities. All they need is etheric energy. Um, so gods and stuff like that would be fine there, um, though they'd probably be battling against an unending hordes of nightmares yeah i cut that section um uh so it's not in the actual book um i know exactly where it was supposed I to be know it's I in right a there. Book um so, uh, the next the next one will be to go to stone and steel where it's got um the details in stone and steel for the dwarven parts but i don't have that book to hand here sadly um i definitely wrote it and if i'm um i'll for next week when or maybe after gav because it's gav next week isn't it so yes. um for the week after i'll have it all prepped for you so i will make sure that i say oh, that i got it i got it i got it you got it uh, perfect so it's, it's okay so it's geheimnisnacht which also is known as the day of mystery or the floating holiday in the empire because of shenanigans then you have it's Winter's Eve in Bretonia, because they don't use Reichspiel. And then to the uh to the elves, the elves call it Twilight's Tide, and then the dwarves call it Aru's Cool. Aru's Cool. Oh, damn it, that's the one I was looking for. So Is that aside from the salvation. Uh, that uh, let me see where it's attributed from. Yes, it is attributed. Really? Yes, page, I'm, I was in the wrong bed. <laughs> page one, page one forty-five of the Tome of Salvation. It's I hang my head book. in, I hang my head in freaking shame. Um, right, right. Let's pretend that never happened. Uh, so I'm going to oh, drop it, it was the, the, the part I was looking for is in the Demons book. Okay, the Demons of Chaos Eighth Edition book talks about how all the different races of the world handle it. Demons. Ah, <laughs> I was looking at vampire accounts. I was in the wrong uh, book. Yeah. I, I was in the Warriors of Chaos book. Um, God damn it. Uh, <laughs> so many bloody books. Um, yeah. Right. So that all aside, uh, we were discussing gods. Could they live up in Warsleep? I think that the answer to that is probably the thing is so suffused with demons and other entities that no god would survive for very long up there. So no god would want to go up there. Yeah. Um, that, I think. Breathe? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're gods, um, but they're not going to be coming into the physical realm for a variety of reasons, um, many of which are contradictory, um, almost all of which span back to the god, the myths that the elves have. Um, so, yeah. All right. Now, uh, next question. Uh, could the Bad Moon of Age of Sigmar be tied to Morslib still? Uh, okay, so this is actually a really interesting question in that in Age of Sigmar, obviously, Morslib is not a thing. However, yeah. it has survived because... Games Workshop kind of pulled a thing where if there was anything in fantasy they genuinely deeply loved, they just copy-pasted it straight into AOS. Because why not? Um, one of these things is Morslib, uh, which is now purely known as the Bad Moon. 
Um, it's and it's basically the same. It's just no longer chaos associated. Um, and it's no longer made of warp stone. Instead, the the way they rewrote the story is that it is a goofy, erratic celestial object that still ha- emits a green light that causes madness. But now it causes a very specific form of moon madness that is associated with the the goblins, where it causes you to get that goblin madness that causes like the different kinds of crazy goblins, and it also causes mushrooms and fungal things to just start sprouting like crazy. To the point that if you're a person and you're caught in the bad moon's light, you will have fungus and mushrooms literally start growing out of your flesh uh, on mm. top of it, fucking with your brain. It's horrifying. Um, it's rubbish. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually, weirdly enough, it's actually significantly more dangerous than Morselib is to the typical passerby. Um, but it's very heavily associated specifically with the goblins. Um, and it, it is their deity. Like they full on worship it and they have their own beliefs about what it is where your moon clan grots, which are your night goblins just think it's the bad moon. And their whole thing is that Scragrot, the loon King, who's their big special character. He's basically Skarsnick. Um, he is obsessed with talking to the bad moon and it did talk to him once. And his whole thing is that he is a wizard that tries to predict where it's going to show up. And he goes there and he unleashes a big army and they take over. Um, wherever the bad moon shows up and it erratically flies around all the different realms and it is crazy. It doesn't follow any set path and it's bonkers and it just shows up having a good time and it spits meteors at people on a regular basis. Of course it does. Um, um, I'll actually take on one of those details and say that it can be applied straight back because it's very easy, particularly because we all call it the chaos moon to associate uh, Morsley with chaos. But if you look at it, strictly speaking, it's not. It's nothing more than a hunk of warp stone. And a hunk of yeah. warp stone is not necessarily chaos. Now, was it created by the arguably chaos-inflicted catastrophe? Yes. Um, it came from that era. Is it magic? Yes. Is magic pure chaos? No. Magic is used by chaos. You could argue that Zinch is the god of magic. But that doesn't mean that the magic comes from Zinch. It's that Zinch is using magic. Because that's it's like, be like saying that slaughter comes <laughs> from corn. It doesn't. Blood doesn't come from corn either. Yeah, um, they, are, Zinch, they are just focused on its use. And yeah, Zinch, Zinch is funny enough to not, argue that. <laughs> He's and like, Zinch, oh, magic is me. But, yeah, and, indeed. And Zinch is so multi-headed, has no real um, core intellect to speak of in the same way that the other gods do, while simultaneously having one, that it's such a mess. But at its heart, it's not really a chaos moon with a large sea. It's a chaos moon with a small sea in that it brings chaos. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about the bad move AOS, um, just to kind of talk it out, is that instead of being created as a hunk of warpstone, instead it was a big celestial moon that Gorka Morka saw, and he tried to take a big uh, bite out of it. And the way... The way the greenskin or uh, destruction gods work in AOS is all of them are things that had an interaction with Gorkamorka and either in some way wounded him. And by wounding him, he poured some of his power into them and they became deities. So like the spider god was literally a horrifying giant spider that bit Gorkamorka and like absorbed some of his energy by biting him and became a god. The Debad Moon is literally a moon that Gorkamorka tried to take a bite out of, and I think he broke some of his teeth on it. And it absorbed um, some of that power and became this crazy erratic thing. Uh, but that's that's the interaction of the Destruction Gods, is that they're all kind of subsidiaries of Gorkamorka, 
because he's the overall big god of beasts. Um, so mm-hmm. they're all kind of like spawned from him in a sense. And that's the that's the that's what the the moon is. Though my favorite iteration is that, and I think this may be the case in fantasy, but I'm not sure, is that uh the spider goblins in Age of Sigmar believe that the bad moon is literally just a giant spider egg and that eventually it will hatch and cover the world in a tidal wave of spiders, which is fucking terrifying. <laughs> Eight spiders. So yeah, burn it with fire. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, next question. Uh, if we sent Gelt to Morslib as it was destroyed, would that be a fitting punishment for him? Sorry, I had to. <laughs> no, I, that that's not a bad enough end. Dear Lord, Andy. Um Morslib <laughs> versus the Great Maw. Let them fight. Uh, yeah, that would be an interesting kaiju battle. <laughs> I, I, yeah, um, uh, I remember this actually bizarrely being brought up when someone was trying to do that. Hey, if 40k invaded the Warhammer world, 40k would have it easy. To which Morslib, interestingly, was one of the first. You do realize there's a giant demon infested moon just wandering around that would pretty much wipe out anything that came close to it and they'd all want to come close to it because of what it represented um but yeah not really the sort of thing that comes into your standard fight yeah um the the great no no not the bees um Now, if you want a much more disturbing imagery on uh, on your head, I will say because we know the Chaos Moon has or the Morslip has a tongue, theoretically the Great Mom Morslip could make out. <laughs> well, that's something I didn't need to think about. Side pedals. Uh, why aren't this even a Chaos race in Andy's eyes when they are big fans of the Chaos Moon? Uh, I would say I think I just clarified yeah, that. He just gave a whole speech about why that's the case. It's just yeah, magic. totally uh let's see uh what's the relation uh we already did with that uh how does morsel affect the winds of magic um i i think the best allusion to it is that it it billows them out you can kind of think of it as like how the regular moon affects the ocean in our world is very similar to how morsel affects winds of magic in their world yeah um i'll give an example of that i um right before i resigned from being the producer of warmer fantasy roleplay i'd commissioned a piece of art which was a very old school medieval style image of morslieb blowing down onto the world and blowing the winds of magic in a great swirling churn and i think that's how many would perceive it as as that moon grows closer to the planet the winds of magic rise and they'll perceive it as almost the moon going and blowing down onto the world and that's a fun way to try and imagine it. Yep. Uh, let's see. Uh, Crowdtier, Van Guy's backstory claims that he sailed the seas of Morslib. Is it mentioned anywhere else that there are oceans on Morslib? Um, that is, I don't think it's mentioned anywhere else. I believe that's exclusive no, no. to Dreadfleet. Um, um, but I really love it as a detail, particularly because it gives you um, a difference between what happens with that ship when it's down, the Shade Wraith in particular, um, down there. Um, the Shade Wraith uh, also has that um uh when they're down in the world and the shade wraith is refused access to the water by manan one of the reasons why it floats because it's so cursed and then you bring that up did we not bring that one up earlier no we did not uh, uh, uh that's what was busy finish, finish your statement and then we'll talk about yeah um but when it goes up to morslieb apparently because it can it actually sails on the sea itself because manan is not involved up there and i thought that was a really nice little difference between how it interacts with the real world and whatever the etheric reflection of um, man's 
Morsleib is up there. Just on a final point, if you did somehow find yourself up there, I think the chance of it being anything close to reality like we understand it down on the Warhammer world is next to none. Reality will have fractured up there, as we can see by the many faces that pop up on that moon. Yeah, it would literally be the realm of chaos. Like, it would just Pretty be... Much. Literally anything would be possible. Are there oceans? Yeah. Sure. Are there realms made of lava? Sure. Are there realms made of bees? Which, sure. Why not? <laughs> which means it almost certainly is inhabited to some degree. Yeah. Uh, Kabanda, on the maps... Of, oh, this is a great question. On the maps of the realm of chaos, there is the bad moon in the realm of chaos. Is this merely a reflection of Morsliv or the real thing? Also, there is Argus, the plague moon, and the frozen moons within the realm of chaos. What are they? That is a That's really a question. fun question. Uh, so... I would say yes and no and yes and no, uh, because the realm of chaos is a fucking madhouse. Um, yeah, I think that um, I, I, I can feel an entire speech coming on. Yeah. I think this one is better handled in a realms, um, the realm of chaos stream. Because there is a lot to cover in terms of how that could be manifested. Yeah, for anyone that wants to, like, yeah, you got the bad moon right there. You can see the little right there. That um, and the nature of what is in the realm of chaos and the reflection of how that moves up to, say, Morsley, I think is probably discrete, but. Um, and I think the long explanation for the but would be an entire stream by itself. So I think that's probably <laughs> best us leaving to later, but I would... Uh, loosely say that there is an association with a great deal of chaos worship with Morslieb because it was created at the same point as they started their war. It is a, a key component to their understanding of the end. And indeed, as we know, the end times are almost heralded by bringing down Morslieb from the heavens. Um, it is basically one huge cycle when Morslieb finally falls, the world comes to an end and chaos wins. So there's going to be a host of stuff that we can drill into on that. But that's another stream. Yeah, that, that will be a stream. Of, like, there's there's so many arguments that could be made for, like, is everything in the realm of chaos, like, an actual thing? Or is it just, like, if someone's worshipping it, does that mean it can appear in the realm of chaos? Like, is the bad moon the realm of chaos? That, that is that what the goblins might interpret the moon as? But that, like, it's a whole it's a whole thing magic i will say though argus the plague moon does actually have a story behind it in that it is actually the skull of a sky titan uh yep. fun fact um that is all full of disease and stuff uh let's see regaldo uh oh this is a great question how does morselib interact with the lycanthropes of the warhammer world does it have a certain effect on them yeah generally yes but it also depends <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a problem with lycanthropes. Um, in fact, there's a big problem with lycanthropes because Games Workshop themselves don't really know what they want to do with them because they've got various types, whether it's their skin changers, whether it's chaos mutants, whether it's just a standard werewolf et al, were cat or whatever, to the point that when we were um, discussing with them about how to include a, one of the older adventures from Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 1, it was expressly stated, you know what, I don't think there's a single were creature at all in the Warhammer world, um, to which I I responded with a fairly clear, but there are. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> bullshit. But there are, <laughs> and, and laid out a variety of them um, that were from a variety of, of, of still canon books. And by that, I mean books that Games Workshop themselves 
um, put forward as examples of what their current world state was. Um, I was halfway through that argument when I resigned. When the book came out, their way of resolving that half argument apparently was they put the adventure in place and put a little box in and said, you know what? Back in the past, there was these things. They're not really things anymore. Bye! And ran. Um, so they really didn't deal with the situation. So the bigger question is, would it be tied to Morslieb? Morslieb is about mutation and lunacy. So mutation in terms of the physical mutation for being under its light, that's change. And also the mental mutation that comes from its light, that's also change. So the answer is yes, but it's also tied to Mansleep. There's a host of stories, particularly when you're in the older versions of Warhammer, where it's Mansleep that causes the change, not Morslieb. So I think the answer is it's complicated and it depends upon what sort of, let's call them like Anthropes, for want of a better overall umbrella term, what sort, what breed, what type you are. Some will respond to one thing, some will respond to another thing, and it will depend upon how each one is written at that point. Yeah, and I just just because we're actually doing quite well on time, I'll just give a very quick thing of like uh, off the top of my head, I, I can think of it like four different kinds of skin changers in the sense that you have your skin wolves, which a lot of people think skin wolves are just regular werewolves. They're not. It's a it's a blood curse. Like it is is passed by through descendants um, yep. or uh, and they are often they can change through a ritual. A ritual has to be performed that causes that inner monster to rip out of them. There are then like your children of Ulrich, which are people that can change willingly. They can mm -hmm. manifest the change through sheer willpower and they can turn into sometimes more than one form. Um, if you actually play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition, there's a character you can meet in uh, Ubersreich who can turn into a just a big dog, or he can turn into an actual werewolf type guy. Um, mm -hmm. there's, also, <laughs> yeah, there's also a specific mutation for wares. Uh, there mm -hmm. is a mutation. Now, the mutation form is usually the Morselib version. Like, that is usually the version where if the Chaos Moon is out, they will transform whether they want to or not. Um, yep. That is, it's usually the Chaos Mutation. And then there is the final form, which are just full-on shapeshifters, which are usually more specifically tied to Manslib. Um, Kuei Yin is one of these. She can shapeshift at will. She's from Manslib. There is a direct connection there. Um, so there's and and that's not all of them. That's just four like yeah. general categories. I, and that was the general conversation that I was having at the time, um, particularly because by the time we were having this conversation with Games Workshop, Uber's Right, for example, had already been released, and there was a character in there that was effectively like an elf or um, a wolf child, so to speak. And yeah, it's complicated is the answer. Yeah, and like Andy said, like I know of a Black Library novel where there's a character that shapeshifts with Manslib. So like when there's a full regular moon, he transforms. Nice. Um, and not all of them, not all of them are lycanthropes. Like there are, there are people that turn into cats or dogs or weird things that defy description, like, um, go crazy with it. Have fun. Um, let's see. Uh, that being said, if you are someone that is affected by change and more slip comes out, whatever change you are going to be affected by is either probably going to be harder to resist, or it's going to be more dramatic, more powerful. Like it will. The best way I think about uh, Morselib as far as like how it affects things is imagine you have a slider of like intensity. Morselib kicks it all the way over, like just all the way to the max. If you're playing a game, all you do is you change the difficulty modifiers for various things because it's exactly <laughs> the case. Yeah. Things go weird. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, for funsies, really, this is one of those situations. Go watch the Lawhammer series. Like when when you're when they are in uh, Bogenhofen and Morselib comes out. 
it has okay. a it has a dramatic impact on everything going on. <laughs> Fucking lead boxes. Oh my god. <laughs> leave, leave the players come up with stupid solutions. Fucking hell. They're like, we have, I was okay. I just have to say, watching that and being like, you have a bright wizard, just like melt the box down or like cut it open and make it into a flat. They're like, no, we'll just wear it on our heads, it'll be fine. It's like, what is wrong with you people? The world is relying on idiots. It's because they're heads. They're just children. It's so, it's so funny. It's so funny of just like, mm -hmm. man, love it. if they have a situation they can make more difficult, they will make it more difficult. It's their job. I well, love it. Uh, let's see. Uh, we talked about Moonclaw and relationship to the Beastmen. It's complicated. We kind of went over all that. Um, okay, Yeti 13. How do the various cultures of the world interact with Morslib? Such as ancient Nerkarns. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. Um, there is a section in the uh, Demon's Army book. Uh, I'm just going to read it. It's a very short little paragraph um, that I'll just hit real quick. Uh, so it says... Oh, an extra bite. Yeah, do that. Uh, so it says this about all the other cultures. It says, uh, in the Drakwald and Musion in Bretonia, peasants abandon their hovels and take shelter in the castles and fortified inns. In the Ogre Kingdoms, vast cauldrons of bloody meat are sacrificed to appease the Great Mon, secure its protection. Beneath Zuffbar, ill-famed caverns are sealed tight by runesmiths, their exits guarded by dour ironsmiths and eager slayers. Across Ulthuan in the depths of Athaloran, prayers are whispered to Aisha and Ashurin in the light of the sacred phoenix flames. Rich and poor, young and old, all hope that the evils of Geheimnisnacht will pass over them. All hope that the night of evils will leave them unmarked by its infinite malice. And that kind of applies to Morselib in general, of that if Morselib is active, um, a lot of the things that can go bump in the night will. And the thing is, it's not just like, oh, mutation. You have to think of it. Demons have a much easier time of manifesting spontaneously. The dead do not rest easy. It, like, you don't even need a necromancer. If Morselib is close enough and the dead have not been properly interred, they'll just get up and start moving around. Um, or spirits that are not at rest will be able to manifest and start affecting the living. Um, and these are all generally very bad things. It's interesting we didn't even plow down into the whole, you know, it floods the world with magic and all the magic things wake up stuff. Um, we sort of hinted at it as we went, but it is absolutely the case. And it pops up as a constant thing in both comics and the video games and Etel, because they love throwing up the big, huge green moon in the sky. Oh, and then iconic. suddenly dead start lifting themselves out of the graves green light bathing them it makes for some really iconic warhammer imagery and it's something that comes up again and again and that's largely because of Morslieb and its influence on the world yeah and actually just to just to reiterate how bad it can be as far as like yeah demons and undead even natural creatures that can be woken up by magic like big dragons ancient dragons there's a much higher chance of them waking up when Morslieb is full and close because all that extra magic can cause them to stir and wake up. Um, and like all sorts of other different creatures or things that have been warded, sealed away, um, those wardings are more likely to fail in those instances a lot of the time, and those things will break out. Um, so like if you're having a campaign with it, have fun, go crazy. I'd like Please. to just directly answer this with a... Could a dragon ogre wake up? Go watch our dragon ogre stream, and a lot of the answers will be in there. But if you want to see an example on that, one of the Lorehammer... Lorehammer, Lorehammer. <laughs> One of the Lorehammer streams deals with the encounter of something that might be a very old dragon ogre, and if it is, it moves. Yeah, and there has the, recently the been yes. <laughs> significant influence of Morslieb 
in and around that area. So the short answer is, could it? It could certainly send it stirring. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would say yes. Uh, <laughs> just, just to make it easier. Um, let's see, uh, let's see. Bellicorn's Rockmaster. Do the ogres worship the Great Maw, which was a giant ball from the sky? Um, so do they worship Morslib? Um, I, I would say no, not really, because you're, you're. I think you're giving the ogres a little bit too much credit as far as like connecting ideas. Of the ogres wouldn't look at Morslip and be like, oh, it's like the Great Maw that also was once a meteor. They would just look at it and be like, oh, it's a big thing in the sky. Um, See, like, I think there's definitely something here for when Morslip swells and its yeah. gut gets big. I think there would definitely be parts of their cosmology and the tales that they share with each other that would account for Morslip getting fat and big and them thinking that Morslip has reached some sort of potential that it had. But it gets small again which makes it kind of pathetic. So there's definitely something in there for a really good uh, myth for what Morsley is as far as the ogres are concerned. But it's not the great entity that really matters because most of the time it's slim, it's small, and it's insignificant. Fuck that moon. Yeah, and, and you know the the passage I read off earlier talks about that they have their own stuff they do on Geheimnisnacht of that. I think they understand that like, Things are more dangerous when Morslip gets really big and that chaos is more likely to do things. And they, especially they live in the mountains of Morn. Mountains of Morn are a very magically charged land. So mm -hmm. that's when like living mountains or living glaciers are going to be more active. So for them, yeah, I'm sure they're like aware of it and they realize things are going to be spicy, but I don't, I don't think they give the moon itself any particular respect um, or worship. We've just been uh, infiltrated at this end by some Lawhammer players. How exciting. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> hey, Kath. <laughs> Did not expect to see Kath just come in the corner there. That's uh, Birdie for those of you who are watching the uh, Warhammer streams. I love, I love Birdie, even though she needs to... <laughs> that, that rune fang. Oof. <laughs> oh, that, that rune fang. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Captain of my souls, as far as I'm aware, uh, I think we've already answered this. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've talked about like, yeah, they're uh, more slip. I will say it is undoubtable or undoubtful to me that um, the dwarves and elves and every every race that does not speak Reichspiel will will have its own name for more. Mm -hmm. um, that will probably be relatively similar in some ways. Um, but uh, like Bretonians probably wouldn't call it Moore's Lieb. They probably would call it Moore's something else. I've um, written this, so I know I've got it somewhere. Yeah, um, I, I've I've named it. If for Andy digs it up, I, we'll we'll like post it. I will find it. I'll post tab it somewhere. I, I definitely have this written somewhere, and I wrote it for a book, and I'm I'm quite convinced it was at least sent through for publishing. <laughs> I just don't know where it is. I think that I will say for Cathayan stuff, uh, they do use like you know ch or Chinese or Mandarin uh, for Cathayan. So if someone wants to actually take a crack at like what our word for moon is, that is the word they would use for manslib. Um, they would probably, they'd probably use something very similar. Though I, I don't know. Quayen actually might I don't think her own would. name. Cause she might actually, name it, which yeah, I don't know what they would call Morslip. I don't know. They, I don't think it would be attached to more at all because they really do distance themselves from the whole concept. Well, it's like, I, I would think they would call it like chaos moon, but they actually would probably have a very specific term for it because hmm. they, uh, games workshop has actually made the dark gods. Like they all have names in Cathayan, which are actually very well done. Um, like we know Zinch is Xi'an Chi, but um, they're the other three have names as well. But I'd have to look them up because I've got it saved as a bookmark somewhere. But I've read their names translated, it's actually quite clever. Um, but anyway, um, 
let's see biofoot uh given wait what uh oh, i think he's kind of asking like given that the chaos moon is magic and therefore like crazy and bonkers rally wise could it actually have part of it made out of cheese and i think the answer would actually hilariously enough be technical, sure yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you you could find the, the the cheese part of uh of morse lip uh let's see Ernest's question in the world that was it was venerated by many different factions um is this also the case in age of sigmar with the bad moon uh interestingly no the bad moon is not worshipped or venerated by all of the other factions because of it has very specific effects relating to the goblins as far as the fungal aspects in that the goblins are drawn to it they have a very innate relationship with it it's charged with gur or the energy of gorkamorka and it literally spawns fungal hey mike thank thank you so much michael appreciate that uh, it spawns like endless fungal growths. Um, it it does not do things that most of the other races like, uh, because only the goblins are very very fond of that, and they enjoy being in its light. Whereas like chaos warriors, beastmen, humans, elves, dwarves, if they're in its light, it's a profoundly un- unpleasant experience. Uh, let's see. Can you better tell it? Oh, okay. Wait, what? This is an interesting question. Um, I don't know if he said the correct character for this. So I'm going to read it out. And you tell me, Andy. Malasar asks, can you tell us about the connection between Morslib and Alariel's pilgrimage east Alariel's. to the Tower of the Sun? I don't think Alariel's the right. Did I don't recall the story. I'd need to see the source. I don't actually recall that one. And yeah, I, Malzar, that one. That I've one. been doing a lot of elfy research lately to try and make sure I didn't miss anything. I haven't encouraged. So if you could um, bring this one back, drop into the comments over on Discord, say where did you get the story from, so we can go look it up and go, oh, that one. Oh my yeah, god, Malzar, you can you can DM me about that one. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. Because um, I'll pass along would... that one because I have actually forgotten that one. Yeah, that seems like it's from a very... I want to say that seems like it's from like a Black Library thing. I mean, Alaria, um, yeah, definitely. Because the, the follow-up part says, why did the locals along the way resist the elven advance rather than welcome their savior who keeps the moon from crushing the planet? Ah, I will say... I know one that, likes the elves. <laughs> yeah, if that, yeah, that's true. If that is that's actually directly tying into... I Actually, I do vaguely recall there might be something involving... No, no, it's not end times. That's not end times. Uh, I want to say there is a writer who wrote something about, I think the elves have a ritual about pushing the chaos moon away from the planet that involves the ever queen. I have completely forgotten that, which is, yeah, really I, 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 I have the slightest, the slightest little memory. Oh, we'll find it out for later. Uh, we'll so later. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, we are talking about moon claw flying anvil. Thank you so much for the comment though. Uh, Jiggy. <laughs> Demons. What? Why did Nagash not simply fly to Morslib and spam magic from there? <laughs> demons. It's basically the realms of chaos. Why didn't Nagash fly to the gate and spam spells from there? It's also releasing magic of all kinds. The reason is because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and it's potentially an almost impossible thing to do because do you know how far it is to just keep on going up? It takes a long, long time to do that sort of thing. And all sorts of magic could go wrong. This is a good question for Andy. Um, Yes, which one? uh, Where'd it go? Uh, Ah, here we go. Would the Hag Witches of Kislev try and ward against Morslip's power, or would they use it in performing their dark rituals? So, the Hag Witches use spirits. 
Um, at least if we go with their original iteration. Now they're slightly different if you look at how they're being presented over in the Total War game. But let's say we run with that version of them. Um, they're using spirits to utilize the magic for them. So first, the Hag Witches would do nothing. Um, the Hag Witches would be talking to the spirits on their behalf. Now, spirits become magically active and enlivened during Morsleib's, uh let's say, phases. And as it gets closer and as its light shines down and everything, the spirits light up. The question really is, um, through dealing with the spirits, do they gain any measure of protection from the worst that the light has to offer? And I think that the hags in particular, the answer would be yes. Much of their magic is about warding and pushing things back through a host of ver a variety of crazily complicated rituals. So I think the answer is yes. They're all about protecting against the influence of the dark gods upon which you would also probably apply the influence of Morsleib. There will be methods of ensuring that the spirits do not interact with others. So, yeah. Do they use the magic themselves, though, to do stuff? No, because they don't use magic like that. Um, that's not quite how they work. Now, I, I would say the hags would certainly be busy with rituals. Um, yeah. To there could be a lot of things that would be happening. If you were doing like a kids' life campaign, you could have a lot of fun with like there's a there are some spirits that maybe demand something. Uh, when Morselib is full, well, or... the spirits be more powerful, so they're going to be much more useful and also more demanding. Yeah, uh, you can actually have a lot of fun with that in a campaign. Yeah, yeah, loads of fun. Uh, let's see, does Morselib have chaos gates or tears where demons flood its surface? It's made of magic. Yeah. It's like it's literally a yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it it has yeah no tears because it just is that. Um, yeah. Let's see, why isn't Morselib a god in the physical plane like the Great Maw is? I, it, it kind of is it's just is. <laughs> yeah it, it kind of is it is in the physical plane it is a physical object it is not a it is not like a mirage or a fake object it is it's yeah. fully real um it just moves very erratically it doesn't like now, to obey the laws of physics does it does what it looks like from the planet reflect what it looks like up there almost certainly not because of all the magic involved mm. um, so it's a really complicated thing but bluntly it's there so yeah this is a great question uh from jiggy as well do eclipses have any oh, unique relationship with morselib huge oh. relationships with morselib yeah yeah so um morselib's orbit um is not like our real world moon our real world moon has is on an elliptic um which means that you when it's full you can see it full from across the world everybody sees it full um, across the world, regardless of where they are. And it moves through its phases, regardless of where you are, you will see it move through phases. Um, but when it's full, everyone sees it full at the same point. And it's only at that relatively rare point um, in its elliptical orbit when the sun, the moon, and the uh, earth line up that you get your eclipses. Morsleib's eclipses are going to be freaking weird. And that's because it's constantly moving at a variety of different speeds in different directions, but on top of that, it doesn't have a nice handy elliptic orbit. It's going in different directions there. And it's also further in, further away. Sometimes its eclipse will be like the tiniest small dot in terms of the amount of um, uh, light that would be obscured. They, it would be a very th weird thing to see. But sometimes it would be wiped out entirely in terms of the amount of light that would reach it from the sun. Equally, it also glows with its own internal light. So sometimes when it's in eclipse, you'd never see it. It just, it would still be glowing. Yeah. So the answer is, this is so complicated 
that you would almost certainly need to set up about 50 different versions, all of which would have 50 different methods that wizards could manipulate the way that the magic is being reflected on the world according to what it feeds it's in, according to how big it is, according to all the rest, that it's effectively one gigantic tool for writing. Yeah, what I will say is there is a very strong reinforced point in the lore that there's two instances that are really important to keep in mind. If Morslib does an eclipse where it is in front of something, and it blocks all of the natural light so that it is the only source of light. So it blocks the moon or it blocks the sun. That is really fucking bad. That is really, really bad. Like something horrible is about to Green happen. Green light time. Oh, yeah. Um, the alternative <laughs> is there is an extremely, extremely rare number of instances where the moon, Manslib, will block Morslib. So Morslib goes behind it. And that is considered the best case scenario because Morslive cannot affect the world. And uh, that moment is brought up emphatically in the Lizardmen in that when the Lizardmen know that if Morslive goes behind Manslib, that is the one instance they get every wherever um, that they can basically make perfect predictions. Their magic works exactly like it's supposed to. They can see prophecy perfectly. Everything is exact. And Tedo Echo, uh, we actually get to see him do this in one of the stories in the Lizardman book where Manslib eclipses Morslib and he's able to see everything. Like he sees the entire Skaven under, in, under Empire. He sees a lot of information and his magic is unstoppable. And he uses it to destroy the Skaven Undercity underneath uh, Ketza, which is like their big one. He drops a meteor on it and just obliterates it. And the Skaven of Clan Pestilence suffer a major defeat in Lustria. Um, and that ties directly into that concept. So generally speaking, if you want to have like a big, the good guys have a chance to do something awesome moment, you want Manslib blocks Morslib. If you want something really, really awful is going to happen and predictable magics become completely unpredictable and crazy shit hits the fan. You want Morslib blocks either the sun or Manslib, uh, which man, uh, that's something I actually don't, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Got it. Um, that is actually something uh, we don't actually terribly see often is like a solar yeah. eclipse with more. I, I agree. I think that's super interesting. <laughs> and I can't believe it's not come up. I was thinking about this before the stream went live. Um, I'm thinking about all the different ones. And I could think of so many different types of eclipse that I was just left going, ah, Man, crap. Super bad for the players if that happened in Lawhammer. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> I've been thinking of it. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to blow through the rest of these questions because we're actually on a, a quick timer. And if uh, we don't get any of these live, then I will just answer them in text uh, later. But uh, a lot of these we've already answered. So no, no, no. We've already done that. We've we already did, well that. We did all that. Uh, we already did that. We did that. Um um beastman rituals uh usually like big like parties they're like feasts crazy parties lots of eating and uh orgiastic parties. orgiastic yeah just <laughs> any, anything to indulge the senses and to celebrate yeah. they do like to rot to do the old beastman yeah though there is uh there are some funny notes that there are some shamans that prefer like a more like structured thing to give actual offering whereas some beastmen use it as just a chance to purely party and that does cause some hilarious conflicts um uh Morgard does not really have much of an interaction with Morslib, thank goodness, because he's already a busy enough character as is. Um okay, I think I think we're 
pretty much good. There are some like really specific questions from Infiltrator Troy that I see involves actual math, uh, which I'm going to skip. Thank you for the question. I'll try and check that out later and see if I can tackle that. <laughs> very math. Oh yeah, my he's, goodness. He's bringing fact, up, like, said that, I love math. He's bringing up like actual like the gravitational forces of the moon and stuff. I'm like, I don't fucking. Uh, all right. Um, pa, 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 pa. Uh, okay. The last few questions. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. This is an interesting, very quick question. Um, do you think there's a best version of a culture anthropomorphizing Morslib? Which is a really interesting question. So, like, the Nehekarns kind of have Sakmet as the, the, the green yeah. tag. So, you've got that. You've got, I mean, you could argue Moonclaw is that to a degree as well. Um, I'd say that the Nehekarans definitely, and as I'm going through each one of them, no, 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 no. In fact, it's probably the Nehekarans who do it best. Yeah, and, and like it's usually referred to in like a hag sense. Um, yeah. So you could argue that um, many Skaven um, associate the moon with the horned rat directly which is a good reason to hide yourself as far away from the horned rat as you possibly can because who wants to have the horned rat looking over your shoulder every two minutes if ever there was a reason to stay underground it was that yeah. um but yeah i can't think of another off the top of my head yep uh the rest of these questions i think we've pretty much tackled uh did cripple peak was caused by a meteor from Morsa? probably yeah probably um and, yeah the rest of these yep I think the rest of these we've pretty much tackled. So uh, appreciate all the questions, y'all. Uh, we're going to go ahead and call it there just because we got to go. Um, we're, we're out of time. And uh, Time. Oh, how rude. Yeah, thank you all so much for watching. Uh, just a, qu a couple of quick reminders. Uh, next week, Gav Thorpe. Uh, Gav Thorpe is going to be on here for next week, which is super duper exciting. Um, so uh, be sure to uh, drop by. Uh, we're going to be over on Andy's channel next week. Yes, we are. Uh, so, so we're going to have you get over there. Like, subscribe, do all those things we keep on saying you should do. Yeah, Dirty Advanced Servant. Uh, I, I would say yes. Yes. Uh, I, yes, because he would be yeah. the inverse of that. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, and uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, make sure to go check out and subscribe to the Lawhammer channel. Uh, like a comment was brought up earlier, we're less than 2,000 subs away from the Quick Head Taker video, which I'll release at 5,000 subs on Lawhammer. Uh, also, make sure to check out Rookery Publications. Uh, they've got a lot of really cool stuff going on there. So, go subscribe to them uh, over on. Actually, I can tell you what we're doing this week as well. We're going to be having D&D's cartographer on, um, Mike Schley, um, who does pretty much every single awesome map you've seen from D&D. &D. And he's also done cool maps like the fighting fantasy maps for the um, sorcery uh, apps and a whole variety of other stuff. Mike's done tons of stuff. He's coming on to discuss how to use maps to not just be maps but to actually illustrate the worlds as a whole it's going to be super fun and also illustration as well so that's next saturday at 7 p.m uk time where we'll have a good hour with mike chatting about cool stuff yes or 1 p.m cst if you're on the the other side thanks um, very much yep and then uh lawhammer every friday uh, same time 1 p.m cst 7 p.m uh bst and or uh i think that's everything so uh, i don't think it is you've missed something very important we're on Lore Master of Sotex's oh, channel, well, here, and he please. always forgets to say, please like, subscribe, and share mm. all the cool shit that he has, because it's awesome. And yes, you definitely should, because we're now on the long trawl to try and reach 100,000 followers over <laughs> on the uh, YouTube channel for him. That's 
That's only 30,000 away. We can surely oh do that God. in a few weeks. <laughs> a few? Wow, all right. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll be right through that. So some reasonable expectations here, Andy. <laughs> I, I have reasonable expectations. Um, I obviously clearly understand how this all works. So that being the case, go like, share, do the thing, because <laughs> poor old Sotek needs your help. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Mornington Crescent, you should be ashamed of yourself. Please like and subscribe. Uh, <laughs> like and subscribe. I like it. Still uh, I like it. Over here. All uh, of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you all so much for watching. Uh, we got to go. So uh, take care. Uh, I will be going through the ideas for SoTech channel to pick up any of the questions uh, we didn't have time for just to give answers to those. And uh, we thank you all for joining us. Uh, be sure to pop by the ideas for SoTech channel if you want to submit questions for Gab Thorpe. Um, we're opening up that right now because there's no vote for next week. And we'll see you guys on the Lawhammer channel uh, next week. So thanks for watching. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Yay.